Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Murder Board Podcast. I'm your host, Walter, and tonight I am here with Cannon. What's up? What's up? And Zaria. Hi. The three of us are back for something that we like to call True Crime July, although this episode will not be coming out in July because my schedule's all messed up. But either way, it's July for us, and so we're talking about true crime films. Zaria, you've been here for this annual thing we've been doing for a while. I think, what, three years now? Oh. I think so because I, I started on a true on true crime July. Yes, you did. We talked about thirteen reasons why, and then we shifted over to uh, a bully. Bully, still our most popular episodes, by the way. Um, it just crossed like two hundred plays, and it's yeah keeps going. Um, Canon, if you ever need an episode to listen to, definitely listen to Bully. It's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> it's I'll keep of- that in mind. Yes, it's one of the funniest episodes we've ever done. The audio goes in and out, and it's a little long. Like, it's definitely one of our longer episodes, but it's worth because we just we just make fun <laughs> of this movie. <laughs> it's, all, it's also the first episode where it was, like, more than, what, five of us on that entire show? Like, we were crap. I think so. It's before we started limiting it to three to four, and unless we do special episodes like Avatar recently, it's when I'll start packing in them. I don't know if anyone's mm-hmm. noticed that little pattern, but I try to keep it between like three, four people. But um, yeah. yes, so tr- welcome back, everyone listening. Stay with us. But uh, we're kicking True Crime July off with a little film that I've been dying to do and that has been kind of been woven throughout the podcast for a while. We are covering, well, on this episode specifically, we are covering Alfred Hitchcock's rope along with the true crime story of Leopold and Loeb. Uh, among some other things I want to touch on before we get started. But, yeah, so if you have not seen Rope, Alfred Hitchcock's Rope, you know, spoiler warning, uh, we will be spoiling this movie. Uh, and um, if you have seen this movie, I hope you enjoy our little show. Uh, man, I you can tell I'm excited because I forgot what I normally said. But I'm excited <laughs> because I love this movie. Mainly because, I, like I said, I've been kind of weaving this out. Uh, we've kind of been having this. There's, like, a lot of ongoing conversations throughout this podcast that I started, so uh, I want to say way back, you know, we do have the Alfred, Alfred Hitchcock of it all. We kind of started that when we did uh, Psycho. We did the first original Psycho way back. Zarya and Shelton was with me on that one as I introduced the timeline of the evolution of slasher films back in, what, 2020? You want to say that was when it? 2020, 2021? Um, that was, sounds correct. Yeah, and I my mission I remember my mission was like oh, I'm gonna make them understand slasher movies, and I failed because <laughs> you guys like <laughs> you liked Psycho, and then you liked Scream, and then uh, actually no, you liked um, A Nightmare on Elm Street. But out of like the six movies I had on that list, only like three of them, so about half, but still failed in trying to get the appeal of slasher movies. But they didn't stop me. Um, but like I said, I've been trying to get this ongoing conversation and. I've said it before, but the madness of two, where we talk about just characters who are so intertwined with each other, they end up sharing the same kind of psychosis. It is an actual medical uh, diagnosis that can't happen psychologically, but I do like the literary and cinematic views of it all. Um, I want to say last time we talked about this, I tried to convey it through Red Dragon, which was the Hannibal movie we did, the second one, or the second one we did, but the first Hannibal story if you will um and me being a fan of just Hannibal in in general expect me to mention Hannibal about 40 more times throughout this entire show (laughs) because there's a lot of similarities but uh I do mention it with that um sorry I don't know if you remember but one of my favorite episodes we've also done along with Bully 
and Red Dragon is uh, the uh, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, where me, you, and Gavin talked about that, and I mentioned, I I, I proposed that idea there. I don't know if it was fully fleshed out. I got to re-listen to that episode, but I, re- I reiterated it there. And then the most obvious one that we'll probably get more into is definitely Scream with Billy and Stu. Um, first of all, Cannon, have you, you you've seen Scream, right? I actually uh, have not. Okay. What? Well, you know, we'll there's we'll, a lot of those horror movies I've I've never gotten around to. Oh boy. Uh, the, we'll tread lightly with our spoilers. But, I mean, you're all good. I don't want to. I don't want to hinder the audience or anything. No, no problem. It it it'll just come up in like reference and passing. But yeah, Madness of Two is kind of the central point. Um, last thing I'll mention that kind of fits in this little category in case someone wants to make a playlist. Uh, me, Sheldon, and, and Hector last year did The Talented Mr. Ripley, where uh, I would have to explain it, but it's essentially the same kind of idea. A person kind of shares or adapts a psychosis of another, and it leads to murder, which is great. I love this little, I don't know if this is a genre or just like a, a theme that I enjoy, but I enjoy it here. But it all goes back to Rope and this true crime story, um, and we're going to talk all about it. So... First of all, Cannon, I want to redirect to you, Alfred Hitchcock. What's what's your thoughts? Would would you know? You are a student of film. What what's your take on Alfred Hitchcock overall? I mean the the old trope, and I guess just almost synonymous is his name is like master of suspense, and I would definitely say he uh, hits that mark with most of his films. There's only about six or seven that I've seen, and I think he's directed over sixty in his lifetime. So. Uh, there's a lot that I want to get around to, like North by Northwest and uh, Vertigo, I believe, are two of the big ones that I haven't seen before. Dial M for Murder. Um, big fan of uh, Birds. I got to actually see that at our local theater last year. They did a Hitchcock week where they did two showings of Hitchcock films every day for a week, hey. which is pretty neat. And uh, seen, um, of course, Rope, uh, of course, Psycho, um, Strangers on a Train can't think of all the ones i've seen right now but yeah big fan of him and just the way that he um i mean i'd say in the evolution of film history he's big for editing especially uh there's a very famous clip of him that talks about you can um show uh it, it was a film of him walking outside of his front door and he was just smiling over at the neighbor's yard and on one cut he showed like these kids playing in the yard so he just seemed you know, like a happy old guy reveling in uh you know, children's happiness. And then in the, the second cut, he showed a, a lady out in her front yard tanning in a bikini. And with that same smile, it gave off a whole, it was the same exact clip, but it gave off a whole different uh, meaning and you just saw it completely differently. So what he did for editing and also just for suspense and thriller in film, I don't think can, can ever really be understated. I know at the time he was seen as pretty radical uh, amongst the general public um, for his <laughs> use of, I mean, now it doesn't really seem that gory or crazy, but back then people thought it was uh, it was uh, definitely against the cultural norms. But again, what he's uh, done for film, he's just kind of uh, one of the greats, and I think that's just accepted even if you're not really uh, into film that much. You've heard the name Alfred Hitchcock, and you know it's, again, synonymous with suspense. So, um, yeah, I think he's done a whole lot, and a lot of movies to this day, I think still, as you mentioned, all those other films uh, draw a lot of inspiration from from hitchcock so again uh he'd be s tier for sure so that's all i really have to say 
Hey, nice, nice. And Zarya, I know, I know you've seen Psycho. Um, have you checked out Alfred Hitchcock since then? Have you familiarized yourself with him more? What's your overall thoughts on him? Um, no, I haven't. From I haven't like seen any other movies outside of um, this movie and then Psycho. Oh, I did watch Psycho too. Hey, um, <laughs> I'm about to say yeah, I did watch Psycho too. But outside of those three, no, I haven't really seen any other movies by him. But I do like the direction he does take with his movies and how he tells his stories. Like those, it's it's pretty cool. Yes, yes, this guy, yeah, master of suspense. I love the fact that he can start off as a slow burn, but by the halfway through the movie, it just ramps up, and you're like, oh my god, what's happening? <laughs> I think the guy really does well with pacing for most of his films, especially later in his career. Um, you know, that sweet spot, which starts with this movie, uh, late 40s going into the 60s and 70s. He kind of perfects his whole little era of suspense where he gets that title of Master of Suspense. And with all the movies, I wouldn't call myself a fan because much like you can, and I have not seen all of his movies, but I've seen the handful. I've seen the famous ones, the, the, the good handful. Um, most of them I would need to rewatch because I watched them all in very quick succession um, during my like, you know, pretentious film bro days. You know? <laughs> and I'll get into when I first saw this movie uh, in a bit here. Um, but I, when it came to Alfred Hitchcock, definitely psycho. I'm a huge, huge fan of psycho just as a, like a, property even outside of hitchcock i love bates motel i love the psycho book um and i was a huge fan of the movie obviously i'm even pretty apologetic about the shot for shot quote unquote shot for shot it's not really but the remake gus van zandt did in 98 and i think it's a, a it's a take on it um and just the sequels i've seen most of them at least twice uh I, we me and sheldon did do psycho 2 earlier this year um go check that out because it was actually a surprise that sheldon liked it and i was kind of like well it's a movie <laughs> um but yeah i i one of my this one rope is definitely in my top like fave alfred hitchcock's movies along with psycho psycho will always be number one for me but then after that we'll have like strangers on a train love strangers on a train it was even the inspiration for the sh uh the the story we did about the train, Zarya. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen the dark comedy Throw Mama from the Train with Danny DeVito and Billy Crystal. But I it's uh, it's the same exact premise, but they just go with a comedy tone for the whole thing. So it's like, you kill my mom, I'll kill your, your ex-wife who you're going through a terrible divorce with. And it's all <laughs> Danny DeVito's idea. And he's kind of forcing it upon Billy Crystal and everything. It's just really like... Not to spoil anything, but Danny DeVito does his act first. He's like, okay, now you owe me. He's like, I never agreed to this. So <laughs> it was just kind of a whole, uh, yeah, anyway, it's like kind of a spoof of that movie. I'm sorry. No, you're good. Yes, I need to check that out then. Um, I would have never known that. But yeah, I my mind was blown when I first saw Dreams on the Train. It was just like, oh, most like most, most of my experiences with Alfred Hitchcock, aside from Psycho, where I actively sought it out, a lot of his movies just surprise me. Like it's always like by accident. I find out I'm watching an Alfred Hitchcock movie. Um, but yeah, strangers on a train is definitely one of my favorites. We'll definitely get to that on this podcast. But Zarya, I was asking, I don't know if you remember the story we did about the train, but a large part of that was definitely a big inspiration from that Hitchcock movie. Well, I got to go and watch it then. Cause I do, I do remember the story. I just didn't know it came. From, I didn't know like that was the main inspiration or an inspiration for it so I, yeah, I have to go back and actually watch that movie yeah, and then probably go back and listen to the podcast and yeah. hear it 
like to hear the inspiration. Yes, definitely. I think in retrospect, I went a little overboard at the end, but of that story, <laughs> but it was still entertaining. And I, I've been trying to like find the script for it. I don't, I think I did delete it, but I'm one of these days I'm going to probably take that first half of that story, which is the like 1950s set part of it, where it is kind of like a take on strangers ever trained, just kind of, uh, yeah. quote unquote elevated. Um, I just like what I did there. And one day I'm going to take that and, uh, expand on it some more and probably make it a short, um, I've just been thinking about that lately, which brought me to here. Alfred Hitchcock, all time, one of the greats, definitely the GOAT. Uh, as we move forward and we get into more of Hitchcock with this film here, uh, I do want to say the true crime aspect, though, it's a lot more uh, haunting. Uh, with these true crime stories and these true crime movies, I always go in very excited and then I leave very exhausted. Doing the research is very <laughs> exhausting. Because I'm just like, ah, my humanity is slipping from my fingertips <laughs> as I'm typing on my phone. Um, so will I say, disclaimer, a lot of, normally I would try and like take what I find and form my own little narrative on it. Like try to, you know, not plagiarize essentially. But forgive me, I didn't have a lot of time this week. So uh, I did just copy and paste from Wikipedia and then edit it as I went along. So some of this stuff, and if I don't know the words, it's just because I copied and pasted. But some of this stuff is mostly from uh, Wikipedia. All right. Let's go ahead and take a quick break. And then we'll talk about Alfred Hitchcock's rope. Is she still harping on her table and how awkward it is to serve from this? But it's really much more convenient, you know. Because this way, people don't have to go all the way into the dining room to get their food and come all the way back here to eat. Hmm. Seems to me they've gone all the way in there now for their dessert and coffee. Mrs. Wilson, please serve the guests. Don't lecture them. We did get up on the wrong side of the bed, didn't we? I'm in quite an embarrassing position. How do you mean? Well, I seem to be the only one having a good time. You and Mrs. Atwater? What's going on, Philip? Would you mind turning that off? I'm sorry. I, I don't like to play with light in my eyes. You know, Philip, I get quite intrigued when people don't answer questions. I'm quite curious. Did you ask me a question? Yes, Philip, I asked you a question. Well, what was it? I asked you what is going on here. A party? Yes, but a rather peculiar party. What's it all about, Philip? What's what all about? Now stop playing crime and punishment, Rupert. You want to know something? Come out with it, otherwise... Oh, no, temper, temper. Now, don't stop. I'd like a drink. Oh, wait, I'll get it for you. Now, keep playing. What would you like, scotch? No, brandy. You're very fond of that little tune, aren't you? You know, Philip, I wish I could come straight out with what I want to know. Unfortunately, I don't know anything. I merely suspect. 
I said that I... I heard you. That's all right. Thank you. You use this? Sometimes. Well, I thought only beginners did. I must say... All right, I'll ask you. What do you suspect? Oh, I've forgotten. Where's David, Philip? I don't know. Why? Brandon knows. Does he? Doesn't he? Not that I know. Oh, come now. I don't. Why don't you ask Brandon? I have. But he's too busy maneuvering the other two points of the triangle. What for, Philip? Just what is Brandon trying to do with Janet and Kenneth? <laughs> What's the matter? What are you laughing at? Nothing. What is... What, um, what am I, so far off the track? There's nothing going on at all, Rupert. You're, uh, more than usually allergic to the truth tonight, Philip. That's the second time you haven't told me. Thanks. When was the first? When you said you'd never strangle a chicken. You're confused. Brandon dreamt that up. For the sake of a very unfunny joke. No, he didn't. No, he didn't, Philip. And if you'll think back very carefully, you'll realize that I know he didn't. About a year ago, I was up at the farm, you remember? One morning, I saw you display your handiwork. You're quite a good chicken strangler, as I recall. Well, I... I just meant that Brandon's story wasn't true. I, I didn't mean I hadn't killed any chickens. That's what you said. Well, I, I didn't think it was a suitable topic of conversation while we were eating. You could have said that. All right, I didn't. We're not eating now, Philip. What'd you lie to me for? Because I don't like to talk about... About what? Strangling I can't chicken. play with that thing. I want you to have them very much. It's extremely generous of you, Brandon. I don't know. Please, I know you appreciate first editions far more than I, Mr. Kentley. It's really very nice of you, Brandon. What's wrong? You and Philip must come to dinner very What's soon. What's wrong now, David, to fix no Do you want Mr. Kentley to have the books? No. I mean, I don't care if he has them. I just... What? What? I just think it's a clumsy way of tying them up. That's all. David never had any trouble taking care of himself. I know, but I cannot understand this. Whenever he's been detained before, he's telephoned. All right, guys, welcome back. We're going to get into the true crime story, Leopold and Loeb and their murder of a 14-year-old boy. Oh, boy. How does this connect back to Rope? Easy. It's two gay men <laughs> who decided that they were better than everyone else. And to prove it, they wanted to commit the perfect crime. Oh, God. These guys, I, I first heard about these guys when around the time I had watched Scream for the first time. And I was listening to a podcast and someone brought it up like Leopold and Loeb is mainly within the final act of Scream when uh, the characters get a little bit intimate um, while being covered in blood. And so it is then where someone mentioned Leopold and Loeb and I went down to a little rabbit hole of like, OK, well, let me look this up. And then afterwards, um, I didn't get like fully into it like I did with like other true crime stories like with Dahmer or um you know some other stuff that i've mentioned you know but 
these guys always kept popping back up in media for me. And I, I know why, because of the person I am. But, like, I feel like not a lot of people know about these guys. So my first question before I start getting into this little backstory here is starting with you, Zarya. Um, I know you took, like, a class about serial killers and stuff like that. We haven't talked about it in a while. But did you know Leopold and Loeb prior to watching Rope? I did not actually know. All right. All right. All right. This should be interesting. What about you, Cannon? Have you ever heard of Leopold and Loeb? Uh, I've actually heard it. It's funny when you talked about it at the beginning of the podcast. I've only heard it like referenced, and I looked it up when you mentioned it again. But uh, about shared psychosis with uh, with killers, uh, I was actually I was um, getting into the whole Columbine story at the time, and that also being another kind of instance of that where one's very psychotic and uh, would probably be on a a runaway train to kill somebody anyway, and the other person being very influenced by that person. It wasn't a lover story uh, with Columbine. That we know of. <laughs> that we know of. We don't know. Uh, but but you, uh, uh, I didn't really re- even remember the lover's aspect either um, uh, of it talking about that again. It was more just talking about different instances of a shared crime between two people. And again, the, the kind of yin and yang of those two people usually. Um, but no, I, I hardly know anything about it. I just know that yeah, Rope was the play that Rope was based on was deeply influenced by that story. Indeed, and we'll talk about all that when we get into Rope. But first, this real true crime story here, man. Oh man, I like I said, this there's okay. So most of the time with these true crime stories, I try to condense things, and normally I would just recount what happened and along with who did it and the victims. Sort of same thing here. But I did have to do a lot of condensing as best as best as I could because these guys were very well known, like aside from the murder, like they come from a very wealthy background. They had really wealthy families. They were very social and around. So there's a lot of information on them prior. Um, but kind of focusing in on here. Uh, and again, forgive me if I like mess up some words or names. It's just because most of this is kind of copy and paste. And also, I didn't get a chance to really read through, but let's let's just try it. So, Nathan Fernanthiel, I think that's how you pronounce it, Leopold Jr., who was born November 19th, 1904, and died of August 29th, 1971, and Richard Albert Loeb, who was born June 11th, 1905, and died January 28th, 1936, usually referred to collectively as Leopold and Loeb, they were two wealthy students of the University of Chicago who kidnapped and murdered 14-year-old Bobby Franks in Chicago, Illinois, United States, on May 19. Uh, yeah, May 1924. Wow, 1924. Seeing these years just don't feel real to me. <laughs> that was a time. Okay, so they committed the murder characterized at the time as being the crime of the century. Back when they kind of gave this out to really few court cases but yeah this was one of those crime of the century type of stories uh this crime here they were hoping to demonstrate their superiority um and their intellect which uh they believe enabled them and entitled them to carry out a perfect crime without consequences uh after the two men were arrested Loeb's family retained uh clarence darrow as lead counselor for the defense uh, Darrell's 12-hour sum, sur, uh, summation at the sentencing hearing uh, is noted to be 
uh, noted for its influential criticism of capital punishment as reputative rather than transformative justice uh, as rather than transformative justice. So uh, both men were sentenced to life in prison plus 99 years, which goddamn. <laughs> Um, did they live those, uh, did they pull out those sentences? Well, uh, Loeb was murdered, uh, by a fellow prisoner in 1936 and Leopold was released on parole in 1958. Sounds about right. <laughs> uh, the case has since served as inspiration for several dramatic works, which I kind of listed off at the top here. The ones that I noticed were definitely number one is definitely rope. We'll get into it. Number two, Scream is kind of how it's kind of introduced to be most people. Um, but I think Hannibal, the television series, really took a lot um, from it, uh, from this case and from Rope. Um, I would also say the talented Mr. Ripley, as far as characterization goes, um, also kind of took from this case at some point or another. So getting into their background, both boys grew up fairly wealthy. Leopold was a very was very sensitive about his appearance. Thus, why he was very intellectual. Meanwhile, Loeb was very social. So these guys are the classic case of like opposites attract, which I think that's pretty really interesting. Um, though Leopold and Loeb knew each other uh, casually growing up, they began to see more of each other in the in the mid nineteen twenties, and their relationship flourished at the University of Chicago, partial particularly after they discovered a mutual interest in crime. And that's where I'm a clock and say that's where the love story started. Um, it's it's so weird, uh, kind of not weird, but like, you know, knowing everything that we know today, you know, just the queer, queer and LGBT community being as big as it is now going back and looking at stuff from like the 20s and even just the 50s. And it's kind of like, wow, like. It's always been there, and yet there's so many different forms of it. I just find that pretty interesting. Um, in this case, it's very terrible <laughs> because these guys uh, were insane. So um, Leopold was particularly fascinated with Frederick Nietzsche's concept of the Superman or the Ubermensch, um, interpreting them as transient individuals possessing extraordinary and unusual capabilities whose superior intellects allowed them to rise above the laws and rules that bound uh, the unimportant average populace. Uh, see, Leopold believed that he and Loeb were such individuals, and as such, by his interpretation of Nietzsche's documents, uh, they were not bound to any societal norm, ethics, or rules. And so this is where, like I said, this is where a lot of like the... A lot of confusion comes in when it comes to their sexuality and the way they thought. This was definitely definitely Leopold's like philosophy. And it kind of just like got like absorbed into Loeb, which is such a weird thing. But also it goes into what I was talking about, the madness of two, where one person is just so charismatic and influential in some kind of way that it kind of just overcomes the other person. And I find that highly interesting. Um and it's, it's weird here how it just, it's just like philosophy. I don't know if we said it on this podcast or I, I believe it was one of the past podcasts we were uh, joking about how like one of the characters in a movie, I forgot which one it was, but we were saying that one character in a movie was uh that scarf guy at a party who was going to play Wonderwall on a guitar. <laughs> like it, it feels that pretentious for them to be doing this. Um, But I do think that their queerness is kind of, uh, or at least to them specifically, not queerness as overall, but to them specifically, 
from what I've read and know, I feel like that kind of fed into this um, philosophy for them. Um, basically saying that because they were different and because they were gay, which I believe at this point they were definitely like hooking up with each other, if not seeing each other, um, or just kind of like being a friend with benefits. I do think this kind of fed into their really twisted way of expressing their queerness because they were, and I feel like it's definitely implied in rope where because they are this other, they become more eccentric, but that eccentricity becomes more dangerous if that makes sense mm-hmm. and i feel like that is a important point to plop out the plop out there plop out uh an important point to point out there when talking about these two because i feel like it doesn't get mentioned when people do talk about them but i mean let's just say it. these guys are two gay men in chicago in the 1920s i don't think a lot of people will turn away the 1920s are just if feminine in nature in my opinion <laughs> but like this is they definitely take it to a different level the pair begin asserting their perceived immunity from normal restrictions with acts of petty theft and vandalism basically testing the waters out uh they did (laughs) they broke into a fraternity house at the university of michigan and stole pen knives a camera and a typewriter and that typewriter was later used to write a ransom note for the murder victim bobby franks uh they progressed to a series of more serious crimes including including arson but no one seemed to really notice and i think that is absolutely hilarious so they're just doing these like you know gotham like level one gotham criminal like style crimes with like we're gonna steal this we're gonna break into this house oh we're taking this and no one cares and i feel like that's hilarious but also it did feed into what they were did cause them to escalate to what they do next which is very sad but i do think that's just in a comedic sense, that's just like, we're going to be the greatest criminals because we're the best people in the world, and no one notices them. At the time, they were 19 and 18, when, uh, respectively, uh, when they decided to do kidnapping and murder of a young innocent as their perfect crime, which I don't know how even the, the most murdery of murderers, the most evil of people, I don't know how you come to that conclusion. <laughs> What's the perfect murder? Kidnapping and killing a child. I don't know how you get to that point, but okay. Um, like that's just the perfect murder the perfect crime to me the perfect crime is like stealing the mona lisa or you know like stealing all of your parents money you know but they decided to kill someone kill a child all right so they spent several months planning everything and the uh, and the method of abduct uh including the method of abduction and the disposal of the body they settled on the method of the actual nature of their crime and the motive uh, was to write a ransom note demanding and devising an intricate plan for collecting it and involving a long series of complex instructions to be communicated on set on uh, one set at a time by phone, uh, which is also dumb. They typed a final set of instructions involving the actual money drop-off form for the ransom note using the typewriter they stole, which, okay... <laughs> This is something. This is a thought I had when I was doing this, Zarya, and I want to ask you too. But like, you know how we we have all these like criminals in in history, and it's like, if you yeah, some cases are just interesting by nature. But if you ever mm-hmm. break down a criminal, you can go into all types of psychological stuff, which is fun, at least for a person like me. But I feel like if you break down any crime, any murder, anything that has been publicized, you realize that 
the criminals themselves are just idiots. <laughs> <laughs> These two, and I guess it was 1920s, so they didn't have like technically they didn't have a paper trail, but like even something as like obvious. <laughs> It's just they went the extra mile to do the obvious, in my opinion. But yeah, so they wrote a ransom note for a murder and used a typewriter that they stole from a fraternity house. And this is their way of getting money. At this point, you might as well just rob a bank. But weren't they wealthy? Yeah, they already had money. <laughs> their parents. <laughs> their parents had, had hired the most expensive lawyer. So... I don't really think it was about either the money could have been like a, uh, a forensics countermeasure. Like it's like, oh, OK, well, since they're asking for money, it can't be nobody rich. But yeah, that was all, that was an interesting fact to me that they even that they did a ransom note. <laughs> yeah, they did use fake names um, or yeah, they do several fake names when devising these this plan and using the typewriter and the ransom note. And again, they would mail the ransom note, I guess. And then talk to the family over the phone, which I think is just weird in general. They leave a phone number. Yeah. Did they? I guess they already knew the phone number. <laughs> All right. So the murder weapon that they used was a chisel, something I had to look up. But essentially, a, do you know what a chisel is? No, I know what a chisel chin is or chisel facial structure, but not what a chisel is. <laughs> so uh, looking back on it now, I feel like a chisel is, you know how people used to like make marble sculptures and they would tap like a little thing. That's essentially. Oh, okay. That's essentially a chisel. Well, back then it was a really long. Like, it's kind of like if you took the the sharp end off of a of a paper cutter, like in those old school. Mm -hmm. That's essentially what it was. Oh yikes! And so that was the murder weapon, and they purchased it. Again, I don't know what the paper trail was like in the 1920s. It's the 20s. It's the 20s. It's probably like, who bought this? <laughs> oh, that was old Carl down on Second Street. Da 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 da. That's that's probably the paper trail. Right. <laughs> but like I'm pretty sure they still had receipts and some And again, knowing these are rich guys, I doubt they used cash. Like I did they have credit back then? Maybe I'm just being a dumb. Maybe I'm just being dumb. But like that that just they purchased the mur they like selected the murder weapon and purchased it. Which isn't un which isn't common at all. Like I'm pretty sure Ted Bundy bought the hacksaw he was using. But still. <laughs> okay, so after a lengthy search for a suitable victim, mostly on the grounds of Harvard School for Boys, um, in Kenwood in the Kenwood area where Leopold had been educated prior, the pair decided upon Robert Bobby Franks, the 14-year-old son of wealthy Chicago watch manufacturer Jacob Franks. Wow, there's a lot of rich people in this one little area. Uh, Bobby <laughs> Bobby Franks was Loeb's second cousin. And he lived across the street from him as a neighbor um, who also played tennis at the uh, Loeb's residence several times. So this little tiny, and there's pictures of Bobby Frank. He's a very tiny little 14-year-old. And I got really sad. Oh. It's a very cute little 14, cute little 1920s little 14. Like, honestly, I just want to put him in a newsy hat. <laughs> that's oh. that's kind of how he looks. And he played tennis, which I was like, oh, that's even more precious. But then we get to the actual murder. So this is where I had to condense a lot because it was just too much that they they did. the These guys did the absolute most to kill a child. <laughs> they did so much that I just it made my brain hurt. So I just really tried to condense a lot down. So basically, Leopold and Lowell rented a car using a fake name, but they still used their own money to rent a car. Keep in mind, and this will come up later, but Lowell, one of them has a car. 
and they drove to where Bobby was, who had just gotten out of school. Uh, this is the day of the murder. Um, they offered him a ride, but Bobby refused because his house is only a few blocks down. But eventually he was persuaded to get in the car with them. Uh, Leopold was it's understood that Leopold was behind the wheel of the car while Loeb sat in the back seat with the chisel. And uh, Loeb ended up striking Franks, who was sitting in the front passenger seat, several times in the head with the chisel. Uh, then dragged him in the back seat where he gagged him, and that's where he died. And see, Leopold and Loeb then drove to the dump site, um, being a culvert, which I looked it up. It's like it's the end of a pipe in those little fields. Like I have one near my house. Um, but they drove to Wolf Lake, Indiana, which is 25 miles south of Chicago, to dump the body. They uh, to obscure the body's identity, they poured hydroclonic acid on the face and genitals to disguise the fact that he was circumcised. Because that's how people identified people. <laughs> um, when the boys got back, it was already known very quickly that Bobby was missing, which I think is also hilarious. Because like we did it, and they immediately get back to town. Hey, um, this kid's been missing for a couple of days, <laughs> and it's like, oh well, <laughs> they didn't plan that far. Um, so it was then that they sent the ransom note to the family, and they began to call the family under fake names uh, with ra- with ransom demands and instructions. Um, their ransom was quickly abandoned, though. Their plan was abandoned because, number one, one of the family members who agreed to take the money to the first drop-off point forgot where the address was and just didn't show up. Me. <laughs> <laughs> and so at this point, Bobby's still considered missing. But the, one of the family members just forgot where to take the money and didn't show up, which um, which <laughs> I think that's also pretty funny in in retrospect it's not funny but also it's like, not funny but it's like yeah dang. <laughs> dang. so i also apologize you know how we do these true crime stuff people if you've been listening for a while we don't mean to really make fun of this but some no. things it's just it's you know we're, we're living in different times but we murder are, is a serious crime yes murder of children is also a serious crime like we yeah we we have our sympathies to the victims but also these killers are dumb as hell <laughs> So, oh my gosh, this murder was almost a hundred years ago. Damn, it's like ninety. It's like ninety nine years. Like this happened ninety nine years ago. Oof, wait well, when we get to a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, so after their first plan was abandoned, uh, the second they tried again with the uh the dropping off of the the money, the ransom, the ransom, and by the time they they got to the plan to do the second one and they sent out the demands, the body was found. So they had to abandon that plan as well. Um, in response, Leopold and Loeb immediately destroyed the typewriter they stole and still had for some reason. And they decided to burn a car robe, which is uh, basically a lap blanket, which is where they carried uh, Frank's body on when they went to dump it. Um, then they went about mm-hmm. their lives as usual because they're rich. So really, no one looked at them for good for a good hot minute. Um, now, what this is also pretty hilarious. So while Loeb went about his daily routine quietly, not being suspicious or anything, and I feel like this is definitely going to loop back around to rope, Leopold spoke freely to the police and the reporters, offering them help and theories on where what happened and uh, to pretty much to anyone who would listen about what happened to this kid and where, where, who committed this murder. 
She got too cocky. He got way too cocky. He was he he <laughs> injected himself into the investigation. That is like rule number one. Well, rule number two. Rule number one is don't kill anybody yeah, like with any it. degrees to you. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, like, yeah, if you if you're going to kill somebody, don't kill no one that can be traced back to you. But <laughs> rule number two, don't put yourself in the investigation do not inject don't willingly put yourself into the investigation because why are you doing that (laughs) he inserted himself with a quickness and meanwhile the other guy is just like i'm just gonna have my coffee like (laughs) that's what he should have done you should have just had your coffee take a trip to paris i don't know if you have that money right but this guy said "I'm, I'm i'm about to go help the police i have theories would you like to hear them out, officer? And this here's what I think <laughs> happened. And wouldn't you know, they quickly realized who the murderers were. This guy seems suspicious. <laughs> and so, like I said, so quickly afterwards, <laughs> Leopold and Loeb were then summoned for a formal questioning on May 29th. So they asserted that on the night of the murder that uh, they had picked up two women in Chicago using Leopold's car. Remember how I mentioned that earlier? Mm-hmm. Uh, then dropped the girls off somewhere near a golf course uh, without learning their last names. Um, the police quickly realized their alibi was bullshit because Leopold's chauffeur, the guy that drives his car, told the police that he was repairing the car um, during the, the, the day and the night of the murder. Uh, and that, that the, day he would have been fired. <laughs> he probably was. <laughs> uh, but he said he was working on Leopold's car in the garage that night, <laughs> the night of the murder. Um, and oh, I love this part. So the the chauffeur's wife confirmed uh, the chauffeur's story by saying that Leopold's car was parked the entire time while she watched her husband work on the car. Um they later found the destroyed typewriter um, in Jackson Park Lagoon, uh, which is also in Chicago, on June 7th. So just a few days or just like a week or so after. And so this led to them really like putting the heat on these boys. And eventually Loeb was the first to confess. He says <laughs> that Leopold planned everything and he had uh, killed Franks in the backseat of the car while he drove Loeb, while dro- Loeb drove. Meanwhile, Leopold's confession was the following. He was driving the car and Loeb killed the kid. (laughs) And uh, eventually they nerfed confessions, went back and forth that they kind of turned on each other. But uh, this led to their trial, Leopold and Loeb at uh, Chicago's Cook County Criminal Court, where a media spectacle burst in. This became the third after those of Harry Thrall, Harry Thal and Seiko and Vincetti uh, were labeled as the uh, trial of the century. And that's kind of the story. They both went to jail, like I mentioned earlier. Um, one died in jail and the other went out and paroled and, I guess, died of old age. But that's the story of Leopold and Loeb, two homosexuals who took their philosophy class too seriously. Um, really quickly, before we take our last break and talk about the movie, Zarian, what are your thoughts on this story it's wild um also they act uh i I was i did read somewhere where they were like they would have gotten away with it if um one of them left their pair of glasses they found a pair of glasses at the scene and um they took it back to the what do you call the 
the what's the eye doctor's name? Ooh, the uh, 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 optometrist? Uh, is it optometrist? Yeah, optometrist. And then they're like, oh, I made these glasses for, I think it was Leopold. I made these glasses for Leopold. And so that's also, that also is a reason how they got caught or a way they got caught. Oh, yeah, but, you're definitely right. How did I miss that? Um, I think it's pretty cool. Like how, because like, I, I mean, not pretty cool, but I think it, I, it's understandable why they were so like probably into like interested in crime around the around their time of being at the University of Chicago because um there was a school of thought I think it is like the the Chicago school of thought for criminology was really developing um was really developing around this time. And so there was a lot of theories about like what makes criminals a criminal, like what different factors go in, right? Rather if it's their uh is it their background, if there's something wrong with their brain. Like it was a whole it was like this was like not the birth, but this was um uh the University of Chicago had a lot of theories going on about like crime and what makes a crime? What makes a criminal? Da, da. So I can I can see the appeal. I can't see the appeal. Hold on. Yeah. Hold on. <laughs> well, I mean, there's an appeal, but, but yeah. Curiosity. I see why. Yes, the curiosity behind behind their crime pro- more than likely came from all of the thoughts swirling around, all of the theories going around at the University of Chicago. Which would also tie in to where we pick up in rope as where they got their motive from. Which I, yep. I love when just like art imitates life and life imitates yeah. art. I love that type of stuff. All right, anything else you want to add there? Um, um. Uh, also, duo like criminal duos always have always been like when it comes to like killers and kill like murderers slash serial killers. Like the duos are really what like makes me interested because like that dynamic um because you have the duos that turn on each other when caught you have the duos that derail as um as like the crime or like the as it's like the police are closing in on them they derail and then like they start to like like spaz out on each other um and then you have the ones that are still completely loyal to each other until the end so like the different dynamics with duos are very are very interesting to me because it's also like if they never met, would they be the criminals that they are that they are or were um yes. that we know them to be? Like if if Leopold and Loeb never met, would like would Bobby have lived to be like at least, I don't know, sixty, ninety, seventy. He wasn't born. Not, yeah. <laughs> well, I guess ninety. I don't know. I forgot. I don't know the progression of medicine. Yeah, um, true, true. <laughs> um, but um, would like if they had never met, like, like just imagine like what could have happened. Like maybe um, Leo uh, Loeb might have not. I feel like Leopold probably still would have done crime, but not like murder. Yeah. Um, probably would have stole some more typewriters. Yeah, probably. But like, like you, you just never know. Like if they never met each other. Like, what would have happened? Right, right. So that's 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 like my that's like like when it comes to like killers and whatnot, duos are like what I really like to study. Cause like for my, I think I 
said this on the podcast before. Um, for my class that I took, I had did a project on two duos, uh, Fred and Rosemary West. Ooh, that nice. was that they are so interesting, horrific, very horrific, and they deserve the punishment that they got. Um, but learning about them, it's just like wow. How can me? How can both of y'all just do this? Like what? Like yeah, yeah. You're right on that. And before I go to canon here, I'm gonna give my little my little spiel. I like I said, I find these guys interesting on the same level you're talking about. Just them being like this this duo that just this one idea just festered and then became this. And that's like for me personally, I want to know what led to them. Like what what was the connection for both of them? to kind of like get to this like form like what relationship did they have like obviously they were casual but it said definitely when they got to the university they saw more of each other they got the hanging out obviously i'm guessing that they there's evidence that they started hooking up um maybe secretly we don't you know that those times and it's like well you know what what clicked in their brains like what attracted them both to each other enough to go through with this <laughs> And that's kind of the same question I'm going to ask with Rope as well. But, uh, Cannon, what did you think about this story of Leopold and Loeb and this, this murder? Uh, yeah, kill a 14-year-old. Both went to the college together. I understood, like, the y'all talking about the superiority thing uh, yeah. that y'all went into on that. I heard y'all talking about how they um, started working alongside the police trying to, <laughs> I guess. Now, what I was going to ask was, like, were they trying to lead them in the wrong direction or were they giving them clues about what they had actually done? I want to know how cocky these guys got. Well, uh, it was just the one. And he basically okay. was, um, he would say things like, well, you know, if I were a murderer, I would kill Bobby Franks because da 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 da. Like, he would give like <laughs> stuff like that, like theories and like. <laughs> Very subtle. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I guess he was trying to be in plain sight, quote unquote, but. <laughs> I mean, when you say stuff like that, though. Like, yeah. <laughs> it was uh, like similar which, to that. Yeah. I was going to say that 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 is uh, that does go back to, to, to rope for sure. Almost like, yeah, just doing it isn't enough. You want to kind of flaunt it, I guess, a little bit. Like, you want the, the fame and notoriety, which I guess could be seen in a lot of famous serial killers throughout history, yeah. is yes. that they, they, they want people to know that it was them, but they kind of take on an alias, whereas that guy just seemed like... Very, very cocky on uh, and going back to the superiority thing, which is, again, going back to what will lead into rope. But I do think it's funny that they think they're superior, so they kill an in, who they consider to be inferior. Uh, a child. But then they kind of show they're not superior <laughs> that they get caught in the first place. Like, I don't know. If you really were that superior, then nobody would ever hear of your name, and I don't think that's enough for them. They have, like, such an ego since they do feel superior, so. Yes, ego. Ego is definitely the right word for it. It's like, what ego you have to have? <laughs> One, considering if you're thinking everyone below you or everyone is below you, you would I would think you would consider taking someone who has authority of you. That's just my thought. But the fact that they chose just a child, it's just like that's that does that that counteracts your entire philosophy dude <laughs> yeah that, that kid hasn't even grown up yet you don't know i mean they could grow up to be a genius and right and you, uh you're like no this 14 year old's dumb so i'm killing him. 
Like, how do you outsmart someone who hasn't even developed yet? <laughs> yeah, hasn't developed the brain. Which, I mean, to be fair, neither had those guys either. What were they, 19 and 18? Is that yeah, right? Yeah, 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 definitely, oh. like, late teens. Yeah. Also not fully grown adults, but, I mean, enough to, to kill somebody. So. But, hey. So, yeah, that's the story of Leopold Loeb. We have a lot to discuss as far as this adaptation goes for this film. So we're going to take one last break. And then we're going to be back with Alfred Hitchcock's Rope from 1948. I do want to. I just think we ought to wait till after you graduate. I don't. It's only a month. Janet, a month. Please. Sorry. I personally consider us engaged as of now. Congratulations. David, no. Look, you can say yes in a taxi. I have a 2.30 appointment I'm and you're... I'm staying right here. Oh? Afraid you'll say yes? I'll see you tonight at Brandon's party. Okay. You can say yes, sir, just as well as in a taxi. Goodbye, darling. Bye. That's the last time she ever saw him alive. And that's the last time you'll ever see him alive. What happened to David Kentley changed my life completely and the lives of seven others. Janet Walker, Henry Kentley, the boy's father, his aunt, Mrs. Atwater, his best friend, Kenneth Lawrence, a housekeeper named Mrs. Wilson, and the two who were responsible for everything, Brandon Shaw and Philip Morgan. Alright guys, we're back. Let's talk about Rope. This movie was released September 25th, 1948. Directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Screenplay by Arthur Lawrence. A story by Hume Cron. Based on Rope, the 1929 play by Patrick Hamilton. The film stars James Jimmy Stewart, John Dahl, Farley Granger, Joan Chandler, Sir Cedric Hardwick. Yeah, Cedric Hardwick. Constance Collier, Douglas Dick, and Edith Evanson. Wow, the alliteration back in the, in the back in the day. All right, and the plot goes as such: just before hosting a dinner party, Philip Morgan and Brandon Shaw strangle a mutual friend to death with a piece of rope, purely as Nietzsche's inspired philosophy exercises. Ah, sorry, purely as a Nietzsche-inspired philosophical exercise, hiding the body in a chest upon which they arranged a buffet dinner. 
The pair welcomed their guests, including the victim's oblivious fiance and the colleague and the college professor whose lecture inadvertently inspired the killing. The budget for the film was one thousand five hundred and ten thousand dollars. I think I said that right, or two million. <laughs> I guess inflation, but or just two million. And the box office was two thousand seven hundred eighty-four thousand dollars. Um, let's see here. So, just a little fun fun facts about this. Number one, Zarya, I'm saying this to you specifically because looking at the behind the scenes of this movie, there's a lot of tea going on behind the scenes here. Um, but I'll get to that in just a sec. Number one, uh, this is Alfred. This is Alfred Hitchcock's first Technicolor film. I think that's pretty cool. But it's funny because he would go back to doing black and white for Psycho. But yeah, Technicolor. Um, and I guess the same thing for Strangers on the Train, which also stars Farley Granger, who played um, he played Philip. So Philip is also in Strangers, okay. Strangers on the Train. I did like Philip's character. Yes, he's. I think he's the best actor out of the cast. He is. Man played Panic to a T. <laughs> Man, I feel like he had to shit throughout the entire movie. <laughs> That's how panicked he was. <laughs> What if that was the direction he got? Like, hey, just act like you're about to use the bathroom on yourself and you're scared to go to the bathroom. <laughs> yes. So this film is notable for taking place in real time and being edited. So it appears as four long shots through the use of stitched together long takes. So essentially, what does that mean? I'm about to say, yeah, what does that mean? Uh, shot in real time. So it's supposed to. Yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry. No, you probably say a lot better than I can. You went to film school. (laughs) (laughs) No, I went first semester. I'm not trying to act like I know anything. Um, So, yeah, it's it's all supposed to, like, as long as the movie is, it's like an hour and 20 long. That's how long the whole process was from the murder in the beginning to getting discovered at the end. It's supposed to all take place within that time. There's, like, another movie, uh, I don't know if, I think I mentioned this before on the podcast, actually, but The Raid, it's an action film. Like, it does that same thing where it's like, as long as you're saying they're watching the movie, that's the actual time experience by them. They're not jump cutting to, like, that night, next day, any of that stuff. It's, like, Mm -hmm. quote-unquote real time. And like you said, with the three cuts into, like, the back of the jackets, the black jacket, I think, all with, uh, who is that, Brandon? Yeah, I think it's, Brandon does it at one point. Twice. Uh, I think I think it was twice and then Rupert once, but yes. I could be wrong. Um but yeah, that's they they did these match like uh Birdman, uh Alejandro and Yuritu. It was like a, a Michael Keaton film from about ten years ago that won Best Picture. It did that same thing. Now it used special effects instead of practical effects, because that was just a practical way for them to go. Let's swoop over this guy's shoulder, zoom in real fast, and then we'll come back, you know, the next day or just reset everything up or uh, change out the camera, whatever it is. So anyways, that was like a, a cool way for them to make it look like the camera never cut once. Um, back then, I'm sure it was still, I can see it was revolutionary with that. Okay. Okay. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yes. I love this. It's because it's, it does feel like you're watching a play. And, and Yeah. It's so cool. And so, like, the behind the scenes of, like, them actually doing this is really cool. So, essentially, everything in that apartment building moved. Like, the walls moved. The camera was moving. The the doors and stuff were moving. And so, whenever they needed to adjust something, they would just move everything as the actors were, like, walking and stuff. Like, like I think that's really frustrating for the crew, obviously. But, like, it 
it's really cool. And if you've done like theater, I mean, it can be very cool as well. I was going to say, I had to be great for the actors, though. Like, I can finally take a break after, you know, 30, 40 minutes of acting this whole out and staging and everything. But uh, I was going to say, after the first cut, I think it's the first time that it's not facing uh, directly into, like, the, the landscape in the background or going into the kitchen. Like, you finally get to see the chest from the side rather than playing from behind it. Because you see, like, the little alleyway and, like, a sign out there. Yeah. So I think for there, it was probably them putting it like you say, staging everything probably outside that window at that point. Like, Hey, we're going to be facing this way now. Now let's set everything up there. Yeah. I like the thing. <laughs> I like to imagine that once they like moved out of that main room and into like the little like door where the door is in the dining room table, <laughs> just like, all right, quick, get the actor out of that chest. <laughs> and he's just like, hurry up. He has to be like as quiet as possible, but he has to like to really get out of that chest or else he's, I was they kept him there for the entire like movie, but I doubt that did. I mean, they never cut back to him, so I would assume, yeah. like you said, but maybe he was just stay there for shock value whenever yeah. they do open up the chest. <laughs> yeah, it's just a scare. Or we want to make this really. Maybe he was a method actor. Maybe he was like one of the first method actors. I like, know I'm staying in this chest. I don't care how long. Yeah. <laughs> do not take me out of this chest. Just has like a little snack in there. <laughs> that and like a little air tube. <laughs> no, not even air tube. He's like, I want to know what it's like. Oh, God. <laughs> All right, uh, last little bonus fact here, and then we'll get into the movie itself. Um, the original play was said to be inspired by the real-life murder of 14-year-old Bobby Franks in 1924 by the University of Chicago students Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. We went over that. Don't know why I kept that in here, <laughs> but hey, bonus fact. Um, but yeah, rope. Okay, um, going out on a limb. Zaria, I'm assuming this is your first time seeing this movie. Yes. Alrighty, and uh, Canon, was this your first time seeing this movie? No, so it, it was the uh, second time. It's been a good refresher because I think it's been about eight years now since I watched it. Um, but yeah, I, I I told you previously, but for the listeners, uh, that was like inspired my. It was like my final project for one of my film classes in film school uh, was to shoot something like I've watched Rope. And I got so fascinated by the idea, like, you can do these really long takes, which I'm still obsessed with, and do it practically with the cut. So I would do the same thing, like, zoom in on somebody's shoulders, do, like, a quick cut, and, like, come out, and we're in a different room. I, I did it instead of trying to make it all look like um, it was in the same place. I would cut to a different area. So I'd go into a guy's shoulders in a dorm room. And then when I'd start zooming out, we'd be outside on the streets and he's walking down the streets of Boston. So I thought it was a cool way to transition into different areas, but still make it all look like one take, but not keep the scenery the same. So it was just, I guess it was very inspired by that movie. Yes. Yes, I just wanted to hear that story again. (laughs) It's, It's so cool. I think Hitchcock is very inspiring for people because I feel I'm the same way. Bit, but with like eyeballs <laughs> so with like eyes i really like close up on eyes and it starts with psycho oh. where you get that scene of norman looking through the 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 picture and that like that shot there and also kind of like texas chainsaw a little bit but definitely like just close up of eyes is where i get the same well, kind and, of inspiration and similar to like i guess in the same area as eyes i think it's on strangers on a train i believe don't they go to like a circus and oh, one yes of the... Okay, so I'm not going to spoil anything, but there's a really cool shot that I actually had thought of before, but the way he did it just inspired me so much to want it. I guess validated that shot for me was 
showing a whole scene going down within the lens of a like the reflection of a uh, sunglasses yes so it showed a uh, something happening in the reflection of sunglasses so uh again not eyes specifically but um using almost like a mirror to shoot something that's going on in the background i just think that's a really fascinating way of like staging the camera Yes, that that background that scene was my phone background for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I'm glad somebody else was really liked it. I didn't know if that was even uh, known by anybody else or anybody remembered that. So it's really cool. Which brings me to my little story about how I first saw this movie, and then we'll move into overall thoughts. But I first saw this movie. It took me a minute to remember when I did, because I spent the, like this week being like, okay, I know I saw this movie, but when did I first see it? So this is my second time watching the movie. For the podcast, but keep in mind for the podcast tonight, I watched this movie twice because I just really like this movie. But the first time I saw it was definitely in the summer of like 2018, and I this had to be like right before I got to Target. But this is, I'm still at the movie theater, and this is around the time where me and Sheldon were probably at our closest. And so, when the night I watched this movie was the same night I had gave Shelton my box set for of my Teen Wolf six season box set for him to watch because he finally I weared him down enough for him to finally watch Teen Wolf but he wanted to and I just bought like the box set so I'm like no 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 if you stream it you're gonna get bored use the DVDs and he just so happened to use the the DVDs so right before he came to my house to pick it up I had just got done cleaning the kitchen I think I was scrolling through YouTube and I'm like I don't know how I came again I just accidentally happened upon Alfred Hitchcock's movies well I'm kind of I happened to like just randomly scroll on YouTube and found this movie and played it, watched it. It was, you know, full HD, everything. It was, I couldn't find it <laughs> when I tried to look again. But Wait, so that was your first Hitchcock experience was Rope? No, no. My first Hitchcock experience was definitely Psycho. But I'm saying okay, I okay. first saw this movie just randomly on like a gotcha. late night in the summer. I, I just okay. got done cleaning the kitchen and I was eating ice cream. And I found it. I was like, all right, well, I guess I'll watch it. And uh, it said out for Hitchcock. So I was like, all right, cool. I'll watch it. And I, that's how I experienced it. And I was like really just immediately enthralled by it. Um, around the same time, though, I want to say I saw right after this. No, okay. Right before this, the night before this, I had watched Requiem for a Dream for the first time. So I was already in a very different mindset. That's a movie I'm afraid to watch. Oh, boy. it It did things to me. <laughs> I didn't have nightmares, but I did have a very depressing day the next day, which is hilarious I'm, because I ended that day watching Rope eating ice cream. <laughs> I was going to say, I've heard uh, that in the same conversation as like a Schindler's List on a movie that like watching it once is usually enough for people because it is very uh, like a heavy thing. And I'm always afraid, like I say, to, to watch it myself. Yeah, that Schindler's List and I would throw in Boy in a Striped Pajamas because I was forced to watch oh, that. Yeah. And I did not like it at all. I had to watch a cartoon after Schindler's List and The Pianist. I had to watch a cartoon for the rest of the night. Ooh, oh, the Pianist yes. is another great one to throw in that conversation. Man. But, um, so yeah, that was my first time watching Rope. And I just, I, I didn't become obsessed like I did with Psycho. But I knew this movie was, like, one of my favorites immediately. And uh, it's always stayed in my mind. Because soon after, I would have, soon after, or no, beforehand because my little brother was born a year before so beforehand after he was born i had watched hannibal for the first time which i'm making that comparison 
And then, like I said, uh, the whole Leopold and Loeb connection to Scream helped me kind of more understand more, helped me understand this movie more. And then I just start noticing this dynamic between the two main characters and a whole lot of other stuff I like. And then it came to realize I like this dynamic and this like theme of this whole madness of two with some sexuality thrown in. But also these are just some idiotic people, <laughs> but I like it. I like it. Okay, so um, overall thoughts. Let's start with you, uh, Zarya. What's your overall thoughts after watching Rope for the first time? I really liked how the story was told, because um, like it seemed like a, it seemed very intimate, intimate, because it was really shot in that one room. Like they might, you might uh, have. There were like some shots from like the hallway. One of my favorite scenes was it was when the kitchen door was like opening and closing and yes. each time it opened and closed he was doing like it was just him uh opening the drawer and then him putting it in the drawer and then, like i don't know like it just looked so cool um while like the housekeeper is just like in the hallway um or whatever she was doing but uh yeah i actually really do did like this movie all right all right canon what's your overall thoughts on the movie Going back to like the long takes and why I think I enjoy them so much is I think like psychologically it makes you feel like you are in that room again experiencing things in real time so it's it's hard to it's hard to pause like you feel like you're such a fly on the wall in that situation uh, is what I enjoy about the film the most it never really has a down moment from literally start to end I mean it starts with a with a bang and um, <laughs> ends on a high note too uh i just want to say real fast i don't mean to get too artsy fartsy here but i was just inspired when i was watching it um some things i picked up on that i could just be again looking way too deeply into it was even the the colors that the uh characters were wearing between uh brandon and philip um like philip was wearing the uh um I keep mixing them up. Phillips, like the sadistic one, right? Brandon's the Brandon's the boisterous, taller one. About to say, okay, yeah, opposite, uh, yeah. Sorry, I kept mixing them up during the movie, even. But either way, it was uh okay. Brandon then was wearing like these like blue colors in his suit versus mm -hmm. Phillips in brown. And again, look, looking way maybe way too deep, but uh, with the sadistic one wearing more cold colors. And the other one wearing more warm colors, like kind of showing their humanity a little bit from the beginning. And I like that whole, it starts off with a dynamic and the, the way they beautifully portray each character is one is like reveling in the crime from the, inst like the moment it happens. And the other one is like more reeling from it um, and living in that moment and can't really get past it, which I did think was funny because uh, Brandon being the one that actually, uh, Again, Brandon's the the nice one, right? I guess to say or the one that's freaking out. <laughs> Philip's no, the no, one Brandon's freaking the, out. Philip's the one freaking yeah. out. Okay, sorry. Philip, um, uh, you see like the shock and horror on his face, and he is the one that actually commits the crime, whereas Brandon is the one that's loving it, but he isn't even the one that murdered him at the end of it. So yes. I thought that was kind of a funny twist, is like you would have thought their roles would be reversed, but he was talking about killing somebody and how proud he was. And the superiority of it. He's the one that took most pride in it, but he didn't even do it. Well, I thought that was just a, a funny little note. But um, anyways, a whole lot to this movie. The last thing I'll say as far as the artsy-fartsy thing goes. 
was so at the very very end the last shot where it's showing the back of rupert so you see uh philip is over there playing the piano and brandon's making a drink and i just like the staging because philip was a lot closer to rupert so it was like the whole time brandon thought he was close with rupert in his like school of thought um but by the end of course rupert has a big change of beliefs and so it turns out that philip is more aligned because he although he did kill somebody he is a lot more humane about the whole thing uh than brandon is brandon's still cold and cut off and it just looked like the distance between them was a lot but the distance between him and philip are very close like there was just a lot of very cool stylized choices throughout this whole movie uh like the whole uh two you talked about being like an it's inspired by nietzsche and the the ubermensch or superman um when they talked about freud uh from right after they mentioned freud they start talking about the chickens getting strangled yes. which is known as like a freudian slip when you subconsciously mm-hmm. talk about something like that so um and then that leads into the whole conversation about strangulation and then rupert starts going into the morality of murder so subconsciously uh, rupert was putting together all the clues because they were subconsciously giving away clues um some of it was a, like a little overt with like philip staring at the book with the, with the <laughs> ropes attached around it yes. i'm like dude like could you be any more obvious and even when he's like do you have a problem with the books i just don't like the way they're tied or something like that it was just like a couple things in there that seemed like a, a little too out there in your face i guess to say um but i mean hey philip was having a traumatic experience throughout the whole movie and getting only more and more drunk uh like the whole interrogation between uh, philip and rupert but anyways just a whole lot of stuff to take take from the film what i don't understand the most though is like did they kill him out of inferiority and also want um i forget the girl's name was it something like janet jace or janet sorry uh, janet her and um, her ex-boyfriend, like, uh, Brandon was trying to force them to end up together. I don't know if he was, like, trying to help a brother out or was he just basically, <laughs> like, I don't I don't know. Like, that's what was, was kind of confusing to me is, like, that seems like it was introduced before the superiority thing was introduced. Um, so I thought that was a little wonky i think again i think he was just kind of reveling in the fact that hey she's single now and she's going to be single for good um and just again trying to throw it in their faces a little bit but being too overt but um but yeah i mean i don't know there was a whole lot that i took out of the movie on second watch so i definitely uh enjoyed it very thoroughly and and in an age where every movie is two and a half to almost three hours long this is a this is a quick and easy watch at an hour and 20 and like i say it never really waste a moment after the credits and that was the last thing i was going to say too is the the hard cut at the beginning that's the only time that you can really tell that cuts from exterior to interior but from there it tries its best to look like it's all one take and that's circling around again like maybe people don't won't even notice that when they watch the movie but i still think they'll feel the effects of the fly on the wall situation because that's the way it's shot um so i think as a casual watcher or as like a a film lover, I think there's something there for a lot of people. Indeed. Man, oh man, I loved every part of that. (laughs) Because this movie, 
and my overall thoughts about this movie, like I said, it's one of my favorite. It's definitely one of my favorite Alfred Hitchcock's movie. It's like it's probably top three for me. Um, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. This from beginning to end is just in in caps capturing in cap captivating. This movie from beginning to end is just captivating for me. Much like Psycho, it just keeps me in it for like. Like I'm able to just sit still and just like be in this world, like you were saying. You, I definitely feel that flat on the wall aspect. For me personally, I feel like I'm just like sipping tea in the corner of this room. I was invited, <laughs> but I don't know anybody. <laughs> Maybe you're the neighbor looking through one of like the back yeah. windows. We don't see yeah. They never close that blind. Yes, I'm just like you know. I'm I here to get a plate, but I, there's a lot of drama happening over here. <laughs> But yes, this movie is just awesome. It's just I love the the camera work. I love the direction. I love the actors. I just like you pointed out the the color of the suits. And I like I said, I connect a lot of stuff in this movie as an origin point for a lot of other stuff. So like I do, I do love the fact that you noticed that the, the Brandon was wearing the more cold color, wearing the blue suit, while Philip was wearing brown. My brain went straight to Hannibal. So if you've seen season one of Hannibal, Hannibal, um, I don't know if you guys have seen Hannibal. I'm not going to spoil it, but. I haven't. I've always wanted to. Definitely check it out. I've been trying to get Zari to check it out. She hasn't yet, but definitely check it out. But I want to say it's in season one. At some point, um, Hannibal's kind of known for wearing these like suits, like the costuming. And Hannibal is kind of one of the, the things it's known for, along with the presentation. And Hannibal is also where he's always wearing these like really nice tailored pattern suits. But at some point in one of the episodes, definitely in season one, he they him and Will Graham are definitely wearing these suits. They're a little modernized and different. Like, like I said, there's probably a pattern on it. But yeah, Hannibal's wearing blue and Will is wearing brown. And it does symbolize, you know, one of them. Hannibal Lecter's a man-eating serial killer and he has this coldness to him while will is struggling with you know this humanity this overwhelming humanity which is built into his character and i and noticed I, that right away when i was re-watching this movie i was like hey wait a minute i know those suits <laughs> i've seen this i suits. was gonna say shameless plug here and this is gonna make me sound even more nerdy than i am but uh one of my favorite paintings of all time it's a uh, Raphael painting it's called school of athens and I think that was like one of the first paintings that actually opened me up to that for costumes in general. Like two philosophers sitting side by side, Socrates and Plato, and their colors that they wear. Like one is supposed to be more down to earth, whereas another one is supposed to be more heavenly type colors, I guess to say, more optimistic. Um, so I think that's a thing that's definitely been around for a very long time. And I just love the, like you're talking about the psychology that that brings with it. And last thing I'll say too, when you keep talking about, uh, like Hannibal or all these different crimes where, um, I think it all goes back to, again, like the superiority, but also like an intellectual murders in a way, yes. like even uh, Rupert points that out at the end of this film on, you know, you've you've taken my words and thrown them back at me. Um, and I never thought it would really be true, but him saying too, that like you've done something so inhumane and you've tried to explain it away or justify it with logic and intellect. And it's like, there still have that base, um, animalistic, like urge to kill. Um, but they're trying to write it off as like, no, it's not me being like cavemanish. It's me being smarter <laughs> than everybody else. I see, you know, uh, past the, the curtain and I, I can 
I can see that this is actually something that I can justify again by saying like I'm better than. So I think even a regular serial killer or a regular killer probably feels that way. But the way that they try to, I guess, just delve into that whole logic more, they feel like, oh, I'm more, I'm more of a sophisticated killer. So therefore it is okay. And, uh, I think that's what's fascinating about all the ones you mentioned. Like, I haven't seen Hannibal. Of course, I've seen, like, the the old Silence of the Lambs movies. Um, yeah. It's hinted but, in uh, those old movies. It's hinted at. But Hannibal, they really yeah. go full force. Into I, I was about to say, I know they flesh him out a lot yeah. more, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> but but I, I, I get where you're coming from, like, with all those different types of murders where it's, like, it's it's murdering, which, again, is, like very inhumane but they're trying to act like we're more than human almost in a way and i love that line from rupert like did you feel like god in that moment or did you think you were god something along those lines yes um so it all goes back to again power but i guess in one kind of accepts it and doesn't try to explain it too much or doesn't find themselves to be very well thought another thing here that i thought was cool was they talked about the chickens and like strangulation a good bit during the movie, but books was brought up a whole lot as a symbol. Um, even like the, the older lady mentioned about some book that she had read or she used to love books. And he's like, Oh, what, when you were a kid or something. So he was almost trying to like write off books as like a childish thing, almost as if he's beyond like reading or he already knows everything there is to know. So what's the point? And then the books that they're gifting to the elderly man and that they put on top of the uh, the, um, the chest. chest. And he even hides the, his cigarettes behind the, the books. Like, the books just kept coming up a whole lot. And I think that goes back to, again, like, the the intellect and logic side of things, um, which is very, very fascinating, but also so scary. It's almost like, a, I would almost think of just right now of, like, a like a Joker in Dark Knight for me, where it's yeah. like this guy is making sense for his murders, still completely unjustified at the end of the day, but he's making sense, and that's what's scary. It's not just like, hey, I want to kill people because I like having power over them. I just like to kill. It's like, no, I have a reason for this killing, and that always makes it a little more terrifying, but also like invigorating, I guess, in a way. And I love it, that like righteousness, <laughs> the righteousness of it all. Yeah, um exactly. Okay, so let's see here. Do, 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 do. Okay, so I, I guess this the this movie can be broken down into like three different parts as far as like topics go. Um, we talked about the camera technique and everything and the the set, and then I feel like we should just go ahead and get this out the way as well. We kind of sort of talked about it as well when we did uh Jesse James and uh, a few other stuff, but mostly Jesse James. But the gay subtext in this movie, um. Did you guys notice? The, <laughs> did you guys notice the gay subtext at all, or did you read into any gay subtext? Because uh, I feel like when this movie is mentioned, it is definitely overtly a part of this movie's identity now. Now, as for for some background, um, the two lead actors are queer. Um, the guy that played Brandon was a gay man and the guy that played philip was a bisexual man who was like like i mentioned earlier there is some tea going on in this cast in this production so the guy that played philip was having a was having this like relationship with the the writer the screenwriter of this movie and to the point where they were living together and the screenwriter i think left his wife and then the other actor the the fully uh gay guy uh brandon 
I think he was said to be having an affair with the producer, but the producer was kind of like on the DL. So it was just a lot of stuff going on. But um, back, did you guys notice the gay subtext in this films? Uh, Zarya? Um, not really. I was just really focused on um the just the dominant submissive dynamic they had. Um, uh, which I mean, I don't know. I guess that could play into it. Oh, but it I didn't I didn't realize it until like I was doing research on the movie. Cannon, what about you? Uh even on my second watch I have to say maybe I'm just an oblivious person, but I didn't <laughs> really <laughs> notice any of it. Really? Uh the only No, I mean he grabbed for his arm at one point and he said, you know, don't touch me again, but even that was like an aggressive way. And like what Zarya just said about I definitely noticed the the dominance and the submissive like personality traits of each but I guess I never took it as like a, a sexual thing. I guess maybe too, because Brandon had also dated, is it Janet? Did that was what he said that girl? Yeah. yeah. Janet is the, I'm going to say yeah. Yeah. Okay, they I think it went, the past, which yeah. doesn't mean anything, but I guess I just, I, I thought, um, it is kind of weird that he was trying to set her up with another guy Can while he's, uh, he, he doesn't really seem emotionally attached to her at all or really anything. So, um, I don't know. No, I, I didn't. But no, I didn't pick up on um, any of that, honestly. <laughs> like, I didn't know that that was the thing in the background or that those uh, guys were actually like um, on the spectrum as far as their sexuality goes in real life. I didn't know any of that stuff. So, again, I'm just maybe I'm just oblivious. Oh, man, I do feel like even when my first time watching it, I did kind of catch on it. Um, but I, I it will kinda... say it is very well hidden. I was going to say, it kind of goes back, I feel like, to our X-Men 2 conversation, where oh, yeah. uh, the whole, like, uh, where the parents are so disappointed in their son being, like, a mutant, or it's like, you know, uh, what did they say? Like, you can choose yeah. not to be a mutant Yeah, can you try not being a mutant? <laughs> yeah, and, like, when you brought that up about the whole sexuality point on that, I remember just going, like, oh, I didn't, I didn't really <laughs> catch on to that at all. I just thought that was a stupid uh, line by the parents, and them not being understanding, and I could see that being used in that context but I, I guess this is two for two on me not picking up on things <laughs> right now. it's okay okay let me just kind of like explain it a bit here so i feel like it's all visual um if you don't know the background of the actors if you don't know the true crime story either then you kind of just hint at it number one these guys are living in an apartment together roommates are not a big thing like roommates are pretty normal whether you know same sex or not um, but back then, and if you were in Hollywood and you lived with a man, there were a lot of rumors that would go around about you, which did happen with the guy that played Philip and the screenwriter, which as I said, they had a very secretive relationship, but they ended up moving in together. So number one, they lived together. <laughs> number two, they are very like, it is that, you know, that old school Hollywood, like everyone's pretty like dainty at this point in, in Hollywood. Like everyone's got that soft side. Um, but I will say right off the bat, um, if you want to look at this movie from a different angle, view the murder as sex itself. Like they, these guys have just had sex. Um, they, it, the movie starts with uh, Philip strangling David, and I do like the fact that you mentioned earlier. It, the only cut is is when it's from outside to inside. But before it does, the music stops, and we just hear this. And yeah, we hear the cut. scream. Yeah, I thought that was a good cut. Or there, uh, I'm sorry, can I say two things real fast yeah, sure. before I forget? Going back to the editing, when they pop open the champagne, like they're in the middle of talking and then it pops off, like 
it was just the way it happened or like the moment it happened was good timing. And one more thing I want to mention too is where he's, uh, where Brandon's hiding the rope in the kitchen, how he swings the door open and it closes and, and or swings it open. He like opens the drawer and then it swings open again. And he's like dropping it like very dramatically into the yes. drawer, uh, two totally unrelated things, but going back to just great moments in the movie, I thought were like, almost laughed at because i was i don't know i guess when i'm impressed like that i just want to start laughing but oh yeah same here like i'm saying like just the ah and then it's a guy being strangled like when did he have time to scream <laughs> yeah was... it looked like steve mcqueen almost i had to like look up the, the cast i was like is that steve mcqueen i don't think he was around at this time but right yeah <laughs> but yeah so david gets choked and dies and i do love the fact that like brandon like cuffs his chest to like easy breathing <laughs> You're like checking his heart and everything so they stuff him in this chest which i do like the chest comes back later in a literary sense but again if we're equating this like murder to sex <laughs> so number one brandon's very out of or uh not brandon philip is very out of breath which is understandable that you just strangled a guy with a piece of rope i don't know i want to know how they came up with that plan but that's a story for a different day but the just him like breathing hard they're both wearing these gloves but, you know, traditionally in this era of Hollywood, to symbolize that two characters have had, had just had sex, someone would light a cigarette. And what does Brandon do right after this murder? After they, lights the cigarette. He, writes, he lights a cigarette. And this man is smoking up a chimney in this entire movie. <laughs> I was feeling man. for his health. <laughs> and, yeah, so we get to them just kind of like reveling, or he's reveling in the murder. Meanwhile, Philip is freaking the fuck out. And it does feel like, you know, these guys have just had their first time or they just did something experimental and so i feel like you can kind of get to the gay subtext by just looking at this situation as them reflecting on them having sex in a way in like intellectually physically it doesn't matter but um i think it does come together when they are opening up that champagne bottle <laughs> and the way they're talking about you know i think philip goes you know how did you feel during it all and as Brandon's talking, he's just like fidgeting with this like champagne bottle trying to open it, but it looks like he's jerking it off. So, you know, there's that. I feel like it's all visual though, but go ahead. I, I was going to say one thing I'm just now reflecting on that I should have picked up on that maybe gave, was a little more overt rather than subtext was, uh, they're taking the drive up to what is it? New Hampshire or Connecticut. I think Connecticut. Connecticut. Uh, Connecticut. And uh, they're saying, uh, uh, Philip had said earlier in the movie to Rupert that they were going up there and then asking why. And I think Brandon chimes in that he's going to go st stay with his mom uh, so that he can lock himself in yeah. and, um, and you know, get, I think, work or practice six hours a day on his uh, music. But uh, the fact of him going to stay with the other guy's mom was kind of even in the movie i was like well that's kind of odd i <laughs> guess but now looking back i guess they were very close to that point so yes very together <laughs> um and yeah so there's just stuff like that throughout the movie um i i did think my first thought when they were talking about the whole chicken story i'm like okay well is this a euphemism for masturbation it's talking about, like you did choking the chicken oh my god i didn't even get that again i'm oblivious man yeah that's what i that's what I, maybe i'm just perverted but i that's what i thought of when i was like okay so this entire movie is just two dudes really reminiscing on their first three-way essentially and, and just, i love 
makes it even funnier when Rupert says, like, I know you've choked a chicken before. Yeah, yes. <laughs> and it's kind of implied that, um, or it's kind of implied that Brandon had a crush on Rupert, thus they were very close. But, you know, as you said later on, like, the way it's staged, that maybe it was uh, the reason why Rupert is so kind of softer on Philip is because him and Philip were actually close, while Brandon, in my notes, I wrote that Brandon just really has this, like, fascination and just wants his, this, he wants his dad's approval like this guy's got massive daddy issues yeah i mean i felt like R- rupert and brandon were a lot closer probably even previous to the film it felt like yeah. but i think they kind of played on both sides of rupert in a way like again w- like brandon on the intellectual side and philip probably more on the humanity side and by the end of the movie rupert's moved closer a lot closer to philip's side because Again, he's kind of in horror because, in a way, he didn't create Brandon, but I do think he fed into that dark yeah. intellectual side of him. So he nurtured uh, it without knowing. So, yeah, he kind of pushed himself away from the whole logic and intelligence side, and he's like, "Okay, I'm gonna move more towards that, that's wrong and uh, and humanity is uh, is you know like." we shouldn't be killing people. People should be able to live their own lives and autonomy and all of that. So he was still being smart about it, but it was coming from a much more humane place rather than earlier in the movie. I couldn't tell at first, like if he was just saying he was going along with the morality of murder and the fact that he believes, like, I love what he say, strangulation day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which is just the purge. If you think about it. Yeah. That's what I thought of. That was the first thing that came to mind. Me we said, maybe we should have too. a week or a day. And I was like, Oh, maybe the purge. Had a throat week. Throat week. Sorry, it takes that to me and I'd burst out laughing out loud. <laughs> I was like, cut a throat week. What? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and like I said, I couldn't tell if maybe he was already kind of picking up on what they had done, even if it was subconsciously, and he was almost going along with it to make him feel more comfortable. But by the end, I felt more like, no, that's actually how he truly felt in theory. But then uh, by the end, when it's actually put into action, he was kind of horrified with his own beliefs. Definitely. Um, so as we get deeper into this movie here, I want to talk about these guys, their, their plan. But first off, um, hopefully I remember to ask this at the end of the show, cause I really want to know, but, um, if I wrote down in my notes right away, if I were to re- remake this movie, my initial thought would be to stretch out that whole entire murder, just about 10 minutes, like the build, like David arriving, the build up. And then we get to the murder and then we it was like that's just my thought like i feel like in, if this movie was made in modern day even even made by myself i would want to stretch out a little bit more get to know david a little bit but david here is just a floating head literally and he's just the body in the background um but i don't know i don't know how how would you guys feel should do you think this is perfect or do you think um if we were doing if we were to have a modernized version of this would a full-on just sequence of them building up to david's death be uh beneficial to this story i just real fast i think i would agree that it probably would be done that way in the modern day but i don't think that would personally i don't think that would be a better artistic choice because i love how it starts with that so it already creates that suspense and also mystery of who was that guy they just murdered why did they just murder him? I think if you give the build up, there's going to be too much 
background, no matter how long it would be. And maybe you would also catch on to their reasons why they were doing it. Um, so I, I think it's just a, a perfect way to start off the movie. And then for the rest of the movie, we're just going into the fallout and, you know, there's this party going on. So if he was showing up like, Hey, where is everybody? I thought the party started at four and they're like, Oh no, you're early. It actually starts <laughs> at five. But, um, um, I just think it would have been a little like cheaper to do it that way rather than it just starts off on like a high note. And then from there it's like, now let's let everything unfold. Cause again, I don't feel like until later on into the movie, I think when like the maid shows up and they're setting everything up when he's talking about when she catches Brandon and Philip talking about, uh, being a lot more courageous than yeah. David was and all that stuff. That's when you first start realizing, but, uh, I would have personally, stuck with the, the Hitchcock way myself but I could totally understand why somebody would want to give some context. Um, I have to agree with what Cannon said. Yeah, I'll just, I'll, I would go uh, the Hitchcock way as well. Yeah, I think that's probably the right choice but again, if I would toy around with stretching it out a bit just because but that's just me. Um, Alright, so I do want to talk about these this these guys, these guys? Their plan here. Uh, It's both fascinating and also like Wow, it's just amazing. So basically, their plan was to murder this guy with a piece of rope because I, I do love the fact that it's just a rope as a murder weapon. And I'm guessing in the middle of the afternoon. Yeah, about the it seemed that way because the sunset comes like again after that first cut, yeah. or maybe second or third cut. I can't remember. I think it was second cut, but yeah, when it swivels back around at sunset. So I think it's like late afternoon. And I so, mean, they're drinking too. So I mean, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it probably it's probably five o'clock for them. But uh, and then so they they kill they kill this guy. They stuff him in a trunk, and so that's supposed to be the end of it. But then <laughs> Brandon's like, "Wait a minute!" <laughs> so their their plan was to like kill this guy, put him in a trunk, and then invite a party over. While consisting of this guy's mutuals, all of his family and friends, and just have the body sit there. Now, I know this is just, you know, this is a film, it's fantasy. I would have thought they would have brought up the smell of the body. They do put candles on top of the trunk, but I would think someone would start complaining about the smell after a while. <laughs> I mean, would it, I, I, I'd be curious, darkly curious on, would a body start smelling within like an hour or so? I don't I know. Mean, maybe. It's well, like it's so fresh. I have no clue. I think it is still really, it's when it starts to like get, like, I don't think the smell comes immediately. Um, it it gets fast, like if it's hot in a room. True. So assuming that it's not hot in that room, I don't. I think it would have probably taken a couple of days for the body to actually, or like maybe a day for the body to actually like smell like a dead body. All right, because we are in a high rise in New York City. So yeah, I was gonna say the windows were open too, so it could have got a little steamy, and maybe by the end, Rupert was going like. Something smells fishy. Yeah. <laughs> also, this apart this apartment is just awesome. I like this apartment. Oh yeah, a lot. I want this yeah. apartment. <laughs> just although like, I wonder where, where the bedroom and stuff is. We don't really get the, that is like true. living room, hallway, dining room, and then kitchen. But uh, and again, I wonder it, how it's set up behind us. Then again, it's kind of hinted at it's one bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> Brandon yeah, says one bedroom. Oh, okay, I didn't see what was funny. I didn't even realize like it was both their places either. Like that's Me something either. I didn't pick up on. I thought it was just like maybe Brandon's place and Philip comes over a lot. Like I didn't, it wasn't <laughs> really explained on whose apartment it was. Cause Brandon was the one 
uh, barking all the orders at the maid so it felt more like oh it's his place but i couldn't really figure that out at the very beginning i uh, even on again second watch i was having to remember like is this david's place i don't know <laughs> like, right David right. running late for his own party and brandon's the organizer like it was just again there were so many questions that were being thrown around constantly in my head but i love it though I, i'm just like uh, really <laughs> yeah one note just real quick about the strangulation i want to tie this back in to me to me with uh, the Heath Ledger joker thing uh is the is the knife with uh heath ledger uh, where he talks about uh how close and intimate it makes him feel to the victim yes um so i think that was probably a uh also the choice for the the rope type of thing they didn't want to do it with a gun i think the gun at the end was just because hey we're out of rope yeah. <laughs> or, <laughs> uh, maybe they didn't have one around so it's like we're gonna have to revert to using a gun but i, I don't think that would have been their their main choice i guess to say yeah, it's a lot cleaner which, yeah. which where did rupert get the rope at the end i was curious is there a second rope lying around because didn't the other one leave the house so? he did well they all left at the same time i'm assuming he just stopped dude and was like hey you don't really need that rope to for those books can i take that rope (laughs) what are you gonna do strangle me (laughs) let me see that rope now by the way i mean okay we're jumping all over the place but um which is fine so wrapping i'm gonna wrap up their whole like plan here because i think it's hilarious but then i want to talk about the characters obviously to kind of like get into more of the story here but um so yeah so they decide to like have this dinner party, and I love the fact that, like, spur of the moment, Brandon's like, oh, I'm going to turn this art into a masterpiece. Let's put the food on this tiny chest instead of that table over there. And <laughs> Phillips is like, you bastard. <laughs> oh, this this is when, this is when uh, Phillips started to get so stressed out. Man. <laughs> His... I think in a way, though, it was like it was hiding the body, like, well, because somebody could just open up that chest and be like, what you got in here? Yeah, but, uh, true, true. But also at the same time, I think it was Brandon trying to like be again sadistic, like Rupert points out at the end, like you were eating off of his grave, like yeah, just like cocky. The, yeah, being cocky, but also that was one of the few I felt like smart things as far as hiding the murder that Brandon did. Although like made asking so many questions and stuff, but uh, and, <laughs> and almost opened real... it twice. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say real fast too uh, a point I wanted to make again on the whole the timing of when it takes place during the day. Remember that the maid's telling Rupert that they sent her out all day uh, yeah. all over town for different stuff. So it kind of makes it seem like late in the day, but anyways, yeah, back to the chest thing. I think it was like a good way to hide the body, but also just kind of, uh, I don't know, <laughs> dancing on dude's grave. Man. Just, and then the balls, the balls, this dude, these guys had to invite, not just his parents, but his oh ex, his girlfriend, and then the girlfriend's ex, <laughs> who was used to be best friends, right? With the victim, this is like wow. I love like this movie doesn't necessarily have like side plots or subplots, but like I love the drama that comes with all the guests that come in. <laughs> like okay, so the dad and the mom were invited, but oh the the dad's here, but the mom is out sick, so he got his sister in law. Which is, I love this lady. I love her so much. She's, I feel like she showed up drunk, and I loved it. Yes, of it. she was my favorite character. Same. And then, like, so then he invites David's girlfriend, and then her ex, which was also his best friend. And I'm just like, oh, 
oh, this is this is some like high level dramas, and I love me some drama, so I'm like, okay, there's like a there's a series in here somewhere just with these guys, and I just I loved how, and I know you were kind of questioning why um, Brandon was trying to seemingly get these two together, which I guess makes sense. I guess keeps their mind off of David, but also I just in my mind it's just like to kind of quote Zarya in our own podcast here. It felt like a side quest for Brandon. <laughs> just to play matchmaker <laughs> well and again i felt like it was him almost in a way trying to still revel in the fact hey david's gone so he even tells him that early on like you're not gonna have to worry about david anymore so i think it was just him trying to play sly but also be so out in the open with it at the same time he's just like i don't know i guess that's what the whole party was truly for was they're like hey we're celebrating our first murder yeah it's um, a victory lap yeah, mm-hmm. victory lap. But uh, I, I do think it's kind of funny that um, throughout the whole party, and especially by the end of it, like it's supposed to be a celebratory thing, and then they're pretty much the ones that ruin the whole party and don't enjoy <laughs> yes. it themselves either. They're just so on edge the whole time. I mean, Brandon early on, I felt like was like kind of dancing around and prancing over the fact of what he just what they just did. But then I love too when like Rupert first shows up. That's the first time you see like Brandon shook in the whole movie. Yeah, he starts stuttering. Uh, he just, yes, stuttering, doesn't know what to say, and he feels like more like he's seen in a way. But I think, like you said, almost daddy issues of him trying to impress him in some sort of way too. Like he wasn't expecting him to be there at that time. But yeah, anyways, which, another topic. Yeah, which brings me to the next topic here: the characters. I want to talk about Brandon and Philip. So many side characters, but mostly Brandon, Philip, and uh, Rupert. Uh, let's start with Brandon because I feel like we've just we've talked about him the most. So, <laughs> like you were saying, in my eyes, I feel like as soon as Rupert gets in there or get it's he enters the party, Brandon just regresses down to being a college dude, like he's being a kid again. I guess I guess these guys are still pretty young; they're still pretty college age, or maybe just like fresh out of college. But like the moment, I think they're grad students. They're grad students. Okay, well, yeah. Well, Brandon acts like a goddamn 17-year-old throughout this entire movie. And I was having so much fun with him just, like, going through these, like, waves of emotions of, like, I just committed murder. Now I got to get this, like, party going. And then Rupert comes in. He's like, now I got to show him how smart I am and how much I've learned. And I'm like, okay, this is exactly how, like, a recent, like, high school graduate after their first like year of college goes back to their teacher and it's like look at how much i've grown <laughs> and that's the, the vibe i got meanwhile and i guess it's just a, just regressions all over all around meanwhile this guy is literally like trying to cover up a murder so how did how do we feel about brandon here zaria definitely got too cocky um he like he really wanted to get away with it but he was i guess he was so excited that you know like whenever someone's excited or like whenever you're excited you just cannot stop talking about it yeah um and it's just like ah, like someone listen to me please i'm so excited about this topic da, 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 da. i think that's what happened with brandon but he had to remember it was a murder he can't just be like i murdered this guy in front of a room full of people because murder is wrong um so yeah so uh i forgot i forgot which one of you two said it but like he did just act like a kid in the candy store like it was like christmas day he just opened up his favorite present he's just so excited and he wants everybody to know about it but his present <laughs> is murder so everyone can't know about it the image that came into my head is like it's christmas opens this big box and it's just a piece of rope 
But yeah. And I feel like he was, I guess he was the Leopold guy because like, yeah, he was just too cocky about it. And he opened up the discussion about like, um, the thought of like what murder should be like, he kind of brought that up and that's, that was the whole reason for bringing Rupert in. And so I'm just like, okay, so this is Leopold. Yeah. He was hoping that like rupert would understand or he would be the one to yeah understand. it's like i don't know dude i mean he understood again like in theory yeah yeah in, but, yeah, theory. in theory but actually but like he, yeah but reality it was like nah i think too what played on rupert more than anything was the fact that he knew both the murderer or murderers and the victim like maybe if that was just a scenario he heard about maybe yeah. he'd be more intrigued by it but i think he was more disturbed since he knew the people too like a Again, connection. they broke rule number one. Don't kill. Don't. Well, no, if you don't kill, no one two. can be traced. Yeah, rule number oh. two. <laughs> oh yeah. Rule number two. Don't. Uh, what would you, I forget what she said earlier. Don't rule number one. Close. Don't kill. Rule number two. Yeah, don't get too close. Or don't get cocky. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, Cannon, how do you feel about Brandon throughout this movie? I think he's made more interesting because of Philip going back to what I said earlier about a lot of those uh, duo crimes, I think is interesting because it's like a yin and a yang relationship. Um, Like like I said, I got into like the whole um, Columbine murders there for, for a little bit and the psyche behind both of them were like one, I think Zaria mentioned earlier where one of them, uh, you know, if they had a better friend group could have just gone on, he probably would have been a, a great uh, musician and pianist, but um, uh, because he was so close with Brandon, uh, kind of being tainted in that way and becoming a murderer, I think because of him, I don't think he was necessarily on a crash course for murder, but Brandon, again, is like the sadistic, psychotic one who chances are he would have murdered whether he was doing it for intelligence or, or for or superiority or whatever. Um, so I think that he was more interesting of the two, but I think it was because he was more of the one that was, again, reveling in it. And you're trying to, I guess, understand him more like with Philip from the get go, again, with him being so shook from the situation, I think you can see his point of view more, you know, where he's coming from just innately, but with Brandon, he was more interesting because why is this guy so happy about it? Why is he again, dancing on dude's grave and being (laughs) so even like when he, uh, told uh janet about marrying or not marrying but loving him more uh david more for because he had a lot more money when she said you know he's a nicer guy he's like well he's definitely got more money yes Um, i did love that just so him just being such a dick and you're trying to it it turns you off in a big way but at the same time like you're trying to um i guess um unravel this guy's brain and how his mind works because again you don't really understand him as much as you understand uh philip i think that again he's a a lot more of a humane character and a lot more relatable um and i think again both sides are so interesting to me because why would such a seemingly nice person um and like looks like he's got a good head on his shoulders be a killer and um why is this guy again like so psychotic in a way too they're both very interesting i don't mean to jump ahead to 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 philip too but i mean you can go ahead. But we can go ahead and jump to Philip too. I feel like I, I guess you said it all for both sides. Well, yeah, yeah, pretty much. That's what I guess I, I like the most. Again, like what I said in the beginning is like they they complement each other so well. It's like 
two sides of of uh, humanity in a way and i think that's what makes them each so interesting the way they play off each other one's like so worried you know should we even be throwing this party is what philip's worried about and brandon's like why shouldn't we um so they just it's almost like the angel and the devil on the shoulder in a way too is what i enjoy because you're hopping back and forth between both their perspectives and again you're kind of seeing it from each one um i think is uh is very interesting and one thing i want to say about philip was when he gets his palm reading which first of all that dude's cut healed up fast <laughs> that like, man's wolverine within, within like two minutes yeah mutants um, I was looking for like, where's like even a sign of a cut on his hand? Because it just happened, and he's like, "No, I'm good." And then gets his palm red like again two or three minutes later in real time, and it's just gone. Which I don't know if that was just a goof or what, but uh, anyways, um, when he gets his palm red, I love when she says, "You're gonna be uh, famous for your hands," and he just his hands start crinkling up, and he just is horrified by that fact. He's like. Uh, she's thinking of it as like, yeah, you're a pianist. You're going to be known, you know, all across the world for your music. Whereas he knows like in the back of his mind, I'm going to be famous because I just killed a guy with this rope in my hands. So, uh, I thought that was very, I mean, he's just kind of throughout the whole movie from again, start to finish. It's like a, a ticking time bomb with him where he's just, uh, freaking out more and more and more, and you could blame it on alcohol, but I think he was trying to use that oh my God. as a as a coping yes. mechanism. But um, yes. but yeah, yeah, just by the end, he's basically just screaming out loud that we murdered somebody without saying those words exactly. Um, and you know, uh, couldn't even answer Rupert on the phone. He's like, Rupert, is that you? And then he just puts down the phone and then just goes in the other room and starts screaming. And then Brandon goes up to the phone, like, no, he's all good. He just had too much to drink. Like as if Rupert didn't probably hear most of what they just said. Man, I saw the uh, same thing. I was like, is he just <laughs> sitting there on the phone listening to them yell at each other? Yeah. Same. But I mean, I don't know how good phones were back then either. I can't say it's like a, like now that I have no clue. Was it like speaker phone or more like regular? Uh, but anyways, um, yeah, I just like both of them are kind of, um, Un, like the cause of their undoing throughout the whole film, but you can definitely see it like personified a lot more uh, with Philip. And again, I think that's what was so interesting about his character is he was very grounded. No, we can't relate to, or most of us probably can't relate to killing somebody, but um, <laughs> just the way that he handled it was like, okay, if I were to be in that situation, I'd be that I, guy. Whereas like, like Brandon was more of like, if you're that guy, I don't want to be around you in any in any context. Uh, you're you're scary, and uh, <laughs> so I mean, both of them scary in their own way. But again, like I think Philip was uh, was the more relatable character. But I would say Rupert being my probably favorite character at the end of the day. I don't mean to jump over to him before Zari gives her thoughts. Yeah, Zari, how'd you feel about Philip? Definitely, I guess relatable in the sense of the anxiety part of the two. Um, uh, I did have where am I? I lost my train of thought. I'm trying to get it back on course. Uh, um, uh, he started like he started to like unravel or like unrail or unravel. Uh, very early on, like uh, like it was like during the murder, he was like, okay, he was like, I'm murdering this guy. Bing, bang, boom. Then it was like it was like like right after, and then like when Brandon was talking about the party, it was like, wait, we're having a party. Yeah, 
like like uh, uh like that's when that's when like i guess reality reality had set in and it's like oh my gosh we're having a party people are going to be in here the body is right there we didn't move the body we're going to get caught like all of that like just i think all of that came rushing into him which made him like very i guess like you could say like this pro- like he probably was acting out of character like um as if just like we're real people and like um yeah and so you could tell that he was going through it and i think i said earlier like uh philip is definitely the the more submissive partner of the two and um as like the night continued on phil you could tell philip turned on brand on brandon which is also kind of normal for duos uh, like I said earlier, they either stick with each other to the end or they turn on each other. Like as soon as like they someone suspects them or they get caught. And so it was just interesting to see like the friendship kind of um, deteriorate as the night went on. And as like especially like when Rupert was like getting on to them, like Philip definitely felt that pressure. I want to say real fast too, Zarya brings up two great points like. Uh, one with Philip's reaction to the party, something I don't think any of us have mentioned is when Brandon was going through the whole list of guests, it didn't seem like Philip knew any of those people were coming. Yeah. Uh, and and he was reacting like we were to saying like Brandon was really just stirring the pot with a lot of these guests and Philip was like our first, I guess, a clue that Brandon was doing that. Um, right. And, an- and another great point when she was talking about the deterioration of the relationship is like, I think very early on, it's not five minutes after the murder is when uh, Philip first snaps on Brandon and he says something along the lines of like, I don't, I want you to get away from me or don't tell me what to do. I think was like first time. And he says it again at the end of the movie, like, don't tell me what to do or how to think. Yes. Uh, Cause he could feel like, uh, uh, Brandon being like the little, like, I guess snake whispering in his ear sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, that's introduced early on. And then like she said, as, more stuff happens throughout the movie. You can feel him growing more and more distant. So I think those are two great points. Indeed. I loved all of that. It's yeah. You guys are both right. You guys kind of wrapped it all up because I don't have really much to add in there. It's just, yeah, we got our Brandon who is just this overbearing, dominant, cocky SOB who is just really wanting to be in the moment. And then you have someone like, uh, someone like Philip who, just want to like go to bed (laughs) this guy just wants it to be over with and yet he's trapped in this like nightmare and you feel it from both but i do think that there are times within the film as it goes on that the two kind of match at the same level at certain points um when most of the time they're kind of yelling at each other or like you know i love all the death puns in this film i caught them like the second time i watched it i was like okay so like as soon as the guests get there you know, I think what Janice or really Mrs. Wilson, the, the housekeeper is the first one to like be there. But Janet's like the first guest and she's like, you know, talking about how she could strangle, uh, how she could strangle Brandon and Brandon kind of laughs. And it's like, ah, I get it. I get wasn't it. the, wasn't her ex the first guest? Oh, wait, like... Ken, Ken was the first guest. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which Ken, I was, before I forget about him, uh, Ken and Janet reminded me a lot of uh dickie and uh marge from talented mr ripley again if you haven't seen that movie 
definitely check it out. But great movie. It's such a great movie. But they reminded me because one Ken looks just like Jude Law in that movie. Like I'm pretty sure he's wearing the same suit. <laughs> That's a great point. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Yes. And then just their dynamic reminded me a lot of uh, Gwyneth Paltrow and uh, Jude Law in that movie. And so I w- I just wrote down. I kept calling them like Ken Marge or yeah. I just kept mixing their names around. But they had the same kind of vibe, and I really enjoyed it. And I I do kind of like again, <laughs> just Brandon being just. Or just stirring, just stirring the pot around as much as he can, really getting these guys back together, telling them to go into the bedroom together was just like, wow, dude. Um, you don't know how many times I wrote in my notes, Brandon, you messy bitch. <laughs> no, for real. <laughs> I wrote it like so many times, I can't even count it. It's just every single chance he gets, he just wants to uprule or change whatever plan they started out with. I feel like they planned this party and yet. I guess he didn't tell or Phil he didn't tell Philip exactly who was coming. And then when he finds out, like you were saying, like Philip is kinda like, wait a minute, what? A whole party? Wait, what? This person's invited? That person's invited you invited Rupert? Like he's gonna discover us. And like he he again, he was right on all of his instincts. Yes. Rupert were the gla Rupert was the glasses. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care. Yes. <laughs> um but I also like um about I liked Philip a lot as well. I Philip is definitely the most relatable because we do see him kind of like deal with that guilt, but also he has these really like cool moments of outburst. I think my favorite scene in this entire movie, aside from the end, um, is definitely when uh, Rupert is like, and we'll get to Rupert in a sec. But when Rupert is like quote unquote interrogating uh, Philip at the, while he's playing piano, I think that's like my favorite scene because at that point, you know. Philip is just trying to calm down. He's drunk. And Rupert's like, all right, well, I know you're at a point where you can start telling me the truth because you haven't been telling the truth the entire night. And they're just going back and forth. And what I love about this scene mostly is there's a metronome there. And I kind of went on this spiel when we covered um, Spider-Man No Way Home. And this is just something that I have recently started to realize about certain films. But... Sometimes directors would do this little trick. Uh, I think it's called a timer. And yeah. essentially, uh, you just have like a noise or something going on either in, in the scene to kind of indicate the, the tension ramping up. And they kind of do a, 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 a cool little moment here with the metronome as he's doing the piano. So he's playing the piano. They're going back and forth. And the metronome is just getting louder and louder mm-hmm. and louder. And then like Philip kind of finally breaks. And it's like, I can't play with that thing, which is like, Again, contradictory because you're, that's supposed to help you play piano. <laughs> yeah, you're supposed to. That's how that helps you keep beat. Like metronomes are essential to musicians. Yes, for and, practicing at least. And I just love that whole little scene. I'm pretty sure that's my favorite. But um, also I wrote down the quote because I didn't want to forget it. Um, so the quote where they are talking about the right before the part, everybody gets there when they're opening the champagne. Uh, I believe Brandon says this. He says, "Murder can be an art too." The power to kill can be just as satisfying. Yeah, the power to kill can be just as satisfying as the power to create. And this reminded me a lot of a similar line in Hannibal. I don't have the actual line here, but uh, it's it's said in Red Dragon as well. But they kind of make it a point in this show. Uh, but basically, Hannibal is talking about how you know what is. Th- I think he's trying to uh, help Will kind of um, understand murder. In a way in which he tells Will something on the lines of like, 
you know, God, you don't think killing uh, feels good to God, too. He just something about dropping a church on his followers and not having any remorse for it. So if God doesn't feel guilty about killing, why should you? And then Will kind of fires back up like with you. You're kind of inserting that I am in some kind of way akin to God. And Hannibal Hannibal Lecter has this infuriating ego, this just this inflammable ego about himself. And it's like, yeah, aren't we all made in his image? And that's kind of like that kind of ends the conversation. And that whole line reminded me a lot of that. And then they both go back into Billy and Stu mode when people start getting to the party because I love the fact that, like, Brandon is just like, come in, come in, take a load off, everybody, enjoy. And then right when Rupert comes in, is it Rupert? Yeah. No, it's the when the dad and the uh, sister-in-law comes in, like you mentioned again, and he breaks a glass and cuts its hand. Yes. <laughs> which happens off screen i think i think we just like the yeah. camera moves over and you just see the glass broken in his hand and one okay. point i want to make real fast too is you talking about the power to kill can be just as great as the power to create that again goes on the jump forward when rupert says like did you feel like god so i think that shows that he did but, but yeah that that poor glass that poor <laughs> And what, well, I didn't understand either. He just, like, puts it down on the tray. Like, he doesn't throw <laughs> yeah. it away in the trash or anything. He's like, I'm just going to set this down and casually go, yeah, I cut my hand, no big deal. <laughs> Nobody pick up the bloody glass. <laughs> it's just there next to all those open containers of drinks. It's the 1940s. <laughs> right, wild time, wild time. <laughs> also, I do love the fact that Rupert kept, and I guess we'll, we'll shift into Rupert now, but I do love the fact that Rupert kept, at, like, debating with, uh, with uh brandon or questioning about how like you know we have this party what's the occasion you're opening champagne it must be a, a very big occasion because you know champagne kind of has that symbolism of like you know grandness you know celebration yeah very gatsby of brandon to anytime but no anytime someone asked him like what was the occasion of this party i every time like i would think of the tiktok sound i know something you don't yeah. <laughs> i know something you will never know <laughs> or they'll never know they're gonna know no, oh they're gonna know now last thing on brandon i just remembered was uh didn't he say early on in the movie too like talking about like a lot of men like David's age would be like going to die at war and that would be a lot more honorable of a death. And he was kind of like downing him for not dying that way. But I'm like, aren't you all like the same age? Why aren't you at war? Like, if you think that's like <laughs> such a noble and honorable thing, like where, why are you here? Like was one of my questions I had early on too. That is true. I mean, it was 48. Hold on. When do actually, I think it? World War II would have just, ended because i know ended. Just, yeah i think it just ended but either way for him to like chastise him over yeah. that i'm like yeah hey, no did you go to war like if not then like why are you acting like you've been <laughs> to war or something or that's the the honorable thing to do because i want to say uh this is james stewart's first role after coming from world war ii oh oh yeah. interesting i think i think i heard that right when i was looking at the documentary earlier or like the the commentary earlier today but I think, yeah, this is one of his first roles back. And him and Hitchcock would form this relationship in which he would go oh. on to do the other movies. 
And that makes more sense too on, I guess that Hitler reference wasn't as far throwing it back very much. It was like, you know, that was a uh, yes. very fresh. Uh, <laughs> Oof, just being just Hitchcock being pushy as all. So I don't yeah. know when, I don't know when this movie was filmed, but, um, um, but yeah, World War II ended in 45. Okay. This movie's 48. So it would have been at least like 47, 46. Okay, so oh yeah, so yeah, yeah. They were Correctly already at? like trying to get at Hitler's psychology pretty quickly, or I guess they already knew what he was killing for all that stuff. I didn't yeah, know it was like that fresh afterwards. Man, I'm telling you, I keep looking at my notes to kind of like pick up where where we should take the conversation. Every like fourth line is just Brandon, you messy bitch. <laughs> <laughs> last, very last thing to say about Brandon and going back to what I said earlier about the Freudian slip. Yeah. Uh, when I think it's Rupert brings up, it was it like a play or something or a book that, Ooh, yes, yes, yes. that Brandon loved. It was called like the mistletoe bow. Uh, and instead of in the story, it was like them kidnapping and killing a bride. I was like, the roles were reversed. Like the bride's living and she's here at the party. And then the, the, uh, the groom is the one that they kill in that instance. But again, going back to, it was almost like, Brandon was subconsciously recreating that story that he was obsessed with in college. Well, yes, because I, I I had the same kind of thought. My thought was that that's where Brandon got the idea to bring, to put the body in a chest because the probably girl's body so, was yeah. in the chest. But I didn't know if that was intentional. I thought or, it was intentional. Yeah, I couldn't tell because again, they just talked about Freud, and I, I all I could think about was the unconscious mind at that time. <laughs> oh boy. Okay, so let's finally get to Rupert James Stewart, Jimmy Stewart. Um, a staple for most of old Hollywood, most of Alfred Hitchcock movies, what I know him from, but I know he's done a lot of other stuff. Um, I mostly know him because of his weird voice, <laughs> his really strong uh, Southern voice, or I guess transatlantic Southern voice. But um, are are you guys familiar with this? Oh, this classic actor, the guy that played Rupert. Yeah. No. No. I, I was gonna say it's a wonderful life is probably one of the biggest things I know him for. Oh yeah. Um, that and that has one of my favorite movie speeches uh, in there too, where he was talking about, I want to like go out and see the world and everything towards being in the movie. But uh, um, another one, non Hitchcock uh, would be uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. I believe that's him in that movie. Hmm. If I, maybe I'm misremembering, I got to look this up now, but I'm 99% sure that was Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Yeah. This guy's. Uh, yeah, famous. it is Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, yeah, there. That it was nineteen thirty-nine. So that's a that's a great film. Also, I would highly recommend. That's a a movie. I don't know. Get on a little side note here for a second. If anybody knows of the Great Dictator with Charlie Chaplin and one of the yes. most fav- famous movie speeches in that, um, I think that's of the same vein where it's a film that's like almost a hundred years old and still holds up with what it has to say about politics and how corrupt you know, uh, Washington is, or just the whole system is and all that stuff. That's a, that's one of the more serious and uh, very deep, uh, Jimmy Stewart roles. But, uh, but like you said, I think majority of stuff that he's known for would, would definitely be the Hitchcock roles. But I always think that's funny because he's, he seems like such a grounded, like warm guy, uh, in a lot <laughs> of his roles. And then Hitchcock is always having to do with murder, which I guess maybe it's a juxtaposition, but, uh, yes. but yeah, I'm, I'm a big Jimmy Stewart fan myself. I think he's, uh, uh, a great actor myself yes i just his voice is just both soothing and it makes me giggle um 
There's a nice little meta reference and a little meta joke in this movie, though. So I believe it is Mrs. At well, Mrs. Atwater. Mrs. Atwater is the the sister-in-law, and she. They're talking about a movie. This is before they talk about the the story in the chest, but they're talking about a movie and the fact that Cary Grant was phenomenal or whatever she says. So the original person that they wanted for the role of Rupert was Cary Grant, <laughs> but he said no because he didn't want he at the time he was living with a man and there was rumors about his sexuality so he didn't want to uh add fuel to the fire by starring in a film that had gay overt gay subtext that's interesting and it, I, I thought that was a funnier moment of the movie too where uh rupert was talking about yeah i saw a movie my one of my first movies recently it yeah was called the something something or or was it the something uh, yeah, I was just start playing on that joke. Like I just thought that was corny but funny. It was a great joke. Also, um, uh, uh, uh dang, I had it, then I lost it. Uh, Cary Grant, yeah, that was him. Oh, okay. Uh, in the play, the play is pretty verbatim for this, just a lot more British. Um, but in the play, Rupert is actually a a, a fellow colleague, like he's a fellow student, and they were all like a study group. I believe um, David Rupert and uh, Brandon and uh, Philip, they were all like a study group. And it's just two of the people in the group just took things too far. <laughs> but other than that, for pretty verbatim. I think it's, I mean, at least in my own head, I don't know the original play, so I can't really speak on that. But I do think it's more interesting to put Rupert as like the house master, more of a intellectual mentor for them in college. I think it adds more. Yeah, actually, sorry. You know what that re- it reminded me of when they you know, when they amended he was the house master. <laughs> what Black Christmas? <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> uh, there goes there goes the Black Christmas reference for the episode. Yes, we got to bring it in somewhere. <laughs> and I was like, was he drunk the entire time when he was watching these boys? <laughs> No, for real. Man, oh man. Just, I don't know. Whenever someone brings up House Mother, House Master, my first thought is the original Black Christmas. <laughs> that lady was knocked for most of that movie. I mean, for real. <laughs> all right. Oh, uh, let's see. So, Rupert, Rupert, did you, we all give our thoughts on Rupert? Anyone else want to uh, add anything? The only two things I want to say is I think uh, he had my two favorite lines. One I remembered, one I wrote down. But, uh, when he first talks to Philip and Philip asks, where's Brandon? And he said, he's in there with like two points of the triangle. <laughs> I like yes. that line. Cause it was talking about the sex, sexual triangle or love triangle going on between David. You said the guy's name is Ken. Is that right? Yeah. Kenneth, but they call him Ken throughout the movie. Yeah. Ken and then Janet. So I just thought that was like a little clever throwaway. And then, um, one more line. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm looking at it real fast is, uh, oh um when he's sitting there and having his scotch and uh he's keeps offering to leave and i'm sorry i'll let you guys get to it yeah and he says all except one guest you haven't gotten rid of um so him oh yes uh, talking about himself but subtly talking about david uh (laughs) so that those are probably my my two favorite like lines in the movie uh that were both very funny and direct at the same time and uh, one more little, like, uh, connection, I say, or just a little Easter egg that I thought was pretty cool. Um, so, like I mentioned earlier, the the Ken, the Ken and Janet 
and I guess by extension, David or Brandon, whichever one you want to substitute for that third point in the time in the triangle, reminded me a lot of just the vibe and how some of those characters are in uh, the talented Mr. Ripley, especially Kenneth. But what I realized is just that after this movie, like I said, Strangers, it would be Strangers on, Strangers on a Train, which stars Farley Farley Granger, who is the lead of that film. Um, Strangers on a Train is an adaptation of a book of which the author is the same author that did The Townsend Mr. Ripley. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. I love it. All connected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Alfred Hitchcock would read a book at an airport and we'd be like, this is a movie now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make this a movie. That's exactly how it happened. He was on a flight. He, I think he was frustrated with the studio, so he took a break. And then he read Strangers on a Train and was like, I need two things. I need Farley Granger and I need the studio on the phone now. <laughs> and he made that movie. <laughs> I, I just love that, too. It's all kind of, it all, it all fits. It all fits. All right. Uh, no, go ahead. One, I swear one last thing about Richard this time. Um, <laughs> going back to what I keep talking about with like the subconscious and unconscious mind, Freudian slips, all that stuff. When mm-hmm. he comes back into the apartment and he hides the cigarettes behind yes. the, the books and he talks about, or maybe I purposely left it without knowing it, like unconsciously, so I could come back. I'm just not sure why I came back. Like he was speaking from his like, subconscious mind or speaking from that point of view which again only added to that uh that theme a little more in the movie but that was really the last thing i have to say i mean i do think he's the emotional climax of the movie for sure his whole rant there at the end yeah 100 he sees uh or what he say too when he tried to grab the gun from philip and he shot to the ground he's like said something like uh Something along the lines of if I wanted to kill him, I would, or if I wouldn't miss if I were aiming to kill or something. Yeah, yeah. Like if he wanted to kill, he didn't want to kill you. He doesn't know what he's doing, and he's like, "Oh, I know. He if he weren't, if he wanted to kill me, he wouldn't be doing it at that angle or something like something about the angle he had yeah. the gun pointed. He wouldn't have missed or something like that. But he had some really cool lines, and like I say, he was kind of the the time between both Brandon and Philip in the movie to me. Like I talked about with that composition at the end, but. Um, he was kind of had a foot in both worlds. I felt like, uh, and he was kind of a uh, a mentor to each of them. And I was going to say too on that when you talked about the interrogation scene with Philip. Yes. Um, I don't. I think from our point of view, since we know what happened and we're seeing it kind of more from Philip, we don't know Rupert as well at that point. Philip is seeing as an interrogation, and that's how we're seeing it. But it almost felt more like in that moment that Rupert was just checking in on a, <laughs> you know, a pupil or something. Like it seems like you're pretty, you know, flustered. What's going on? And he kept lying to him. And I don't think he was thinking, oh, you're lying because you murdered somebody. He was just like, you're lying to me for something. You know, just tell me what it is. And I'm just, he felt like more he was trying to like lend a helping hand. But uh, the when he said, you know, stop interrogating me, I think from that point on too, he was like, oh, he sees something's up perspective yeah guilty conscience is playing so um yeah just a lot of interesting stuff with rupert i think is why he was probably my favorite character in the movie yes yes all right um so kind of moving toward the end here there's some really great moments i know we'll talk about the end like shot and everything but um i do love the fact that you know obviously mind blow moment of the entire movie i would say is when everyone's leaving and uh mrs wilson gets out rupert's hat and then rupert's like oh, oh yeah 
puts on the hat and she's like, oh, that's not your hat. Takes the hat off and gives him his hat and looks down and says DK. Not for Donkey, Donkey Kong. Kong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we had this scene. That was my first thought. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, where did Donkey Kong get in this movie? <laughs> but for David, David been Donkey Kong the whole time. Is that man, a twist? Man, he comes out of that chest and just goes Rah! like he turns into a, a were gorilla or something like that. Brandon and Philip or Mario and Luigi. Yeah. <laughs> they're, climbing, they're climbing the high rise with oh ladders. My guys oh man uh make that movie but no it, it starts off as rope and then it kind of turns into mario by the end of it it's sonic whoa <laughs> well crossing over yes but um man where was i going again <laughs> okay the hat uh, yeah, the, hat, the hat. hat yes so the hat says dk um what was what was your i'm sorry i want to know about you specifically since it's your first time watching it but what was your thought on the whole hat reveal. They done got guy. <laughs> they done got guy. It's over with. Ru- like Rupert had a suspicion, but now he knows. And so now he has to come back to make sure that the facts are the facts before he's like, before he goes like boss mode on him. <laughs> yes, man. Again, it's, after seeing this movie, like before when i got to that moment i sat up in my bed like, i was like oh my okay <laughs> it's it's here now the, the third act is here uh canon how did you feel about that uh, little literal hat drop moment there <laughs> oh that's a good little pun um i uh i think it was so ironic the fact that they were so worried about the rope the whole movie and that being the clue that would give them away and even brandon says earlier on like you know, rope's just a regular household item. It could be used for anything. Why are you so worried? And then they just completely forget about the, the hat the whole time. <laughs> so it's like that was just sitting there in the background, and they just never once considered that. They were so worried about everything else and so and caught in the fallout that forgot to get rid of probably the, the biggest clue in the, in the household, definitely the biggest clue. So, um, yeah, I just thought that was ironic on their part. Again, going back to the superiority thing like you guys think you're so intelligent and you shouldn't even think out this whole crime scene like uh yeah anyways yeah. i know that i j- i know that i joked about rupert being the su- about being the glasses is actually that hat <laughs> the, hat, the yeah. hat was the true glasses <laughs> give that hat no rupert word. rupert's more like the daniel craig of the knives out movies to me yeah <laughs> <laughs> with the scotch and honestly I can see some inspiration there. They kind of sound the same. <laughs> I thought that was cool because, like, too, it, it, uh, for a majority of the movie, it plays like a, at least a murder mystery with Rupert, but even other people picking up on stuff, even though mm-hmm. you know who killed who and you're starting to realize why. It, yes. uh, like, along with being a thriller suspense movie, it definitely had those murder mystery elements, even though, again, there was a, there was mystery, but it wasn't a mystery on, who done it? I guess it wasn't a who done it uh, murder mystery, but it was like a murder mystery in its own way, which is really interesting. Yeah, because you get that moment where, um, again, kind of calling back to Leopold and Loeb about how just the, <laughs> how would you get rid of David if you or what well, you know? And then he goes through that entire like, well, here's how I would do it, but he's literally like retracing their steps for them. <laughs> Except for he gets caught up on the kidnapping thing, and he's yeah. like. I wouldn't have thought of that unless Janet said it and it just doesn't feel right. And then, yeah, like you said, how he 
walks it through almost himself and like brandon just keeps going and then yeah brandon is just brandon is hard as a rock at this point (laughs) him giving away his gun and everything i was like dude like what's going on in your head i'm gonna load this gun and then he discovers he has one he's like oh no you know connecticut's a dangerous place i need to protect my mother um, and just throws the gun. A away. phrase like, you probably dumb, never you? heard. You're right. You're right. He <laughs> hasn't called his mom once this entire time. <laughs> Meanwhile, Philip is just like done for the night. He is hung yeah. over. I Check mean, out. Yeah, he is just like I. I just want to die. <laughs> I love how he just like. I love the random moment where he breaks the glass. <laughs> it smashes it on the in the floor. <laughs> starts going off and i guess now that we've talked about so many like uh themes or like symbolisms or just stuff that keeps reoccurring his hands are definitely a thing from the beginning to like i said when he gets his palms red and also cuts his hands like yes. uh being the pianist and everything there's just a lot going on with with his hands <laughs> man you're just making me love this movie more because one of my favorite things about psycho is just all the different motifs that are that play into both the characters of norman and Marion, and then here it's like you're totally right you know the hands the the hat and the the chest itself and everything i'm just like ah hitchcock really loves just hammering motifs and using symbols and i i love that type of stuff so that's just my chest is hurting from my heart growing so much (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean honestly the more we talked about this movie tonight not to go ahead and give the the final review but the more we talked about it the more i have fallen in love with it too i'm just like man this had so much packed in an hour and 20 minutes like again why can't movies today do that they need two and a half to three hours to try to fit all that stuff in and drag it out but just didn't waste a moment I do. I just love this. <laughs> it's just one of those like old timey things. But you know, when before Rupert uh, kind of calls to come back up, it's uh, David and Brandon arguing, and, and Brand David and Brandon, Philip and Brandon start arguing, and Philip is just lost it at this point, and so Brandon slaps the shit out of him. <laughs> Yeah, and the look of like shock on Philip's face. Like, did you really just do that? Did you just hit me? Anytime that happens in a movie, I'm just like, that is hilarious. And he did tell him earlier on in the movie, too, like, don't touch me again. So he slapped him. He's like, I think that counts as touching me. Yes. She's also like, you know, um, what does he say? I'm having like the worst. He's like, I'm having a really bad night. And he's like, keep drinking. You'll have the worst morning. He's like, I'm not worried about a hangover. <laughs> yeah. At least the hangover will be mine. Yeah. I thought that was a great line. <laughs> also Rupert's cigarette case, about the size of our phones, right? Cause that, that, that is, is a, a, that is a lot. Is it like a two a row good. cigarette case then? It that's... looked like it was three rows. Cause that thing was huge. <laughs> Yeah, it and also was. It was like golden, like that thing looks expensive. Yeah. I, I wanted that. That'd be a really cool movie prop to have. Definitely, but my first thought was like, now how did you lose that big thing? And knowing that he <laughs> didn't lose it, but I'm like, anyone would have seen that. Thanks, <laughs> because it's huge. And I guess that's why pants were so big back then. But like, man, that thing was huge. I want one though. You're right, Gannon. That one, it looks cool. All right, so one of my old Jimmy Stewart's voice makes me laugh. <laughs> I do love, I just, I, I do love the, uh, the, the thing where, uh, yeah, Brandon breaks and he goes, "Cat and mouse, mouse and cat. Who's the cat and who's the mouse?" Like that was cool. But we yeah. get into the final like scene in uh, Rupert's big monologue, 
and Brandon just trying to just explain himself and really appeal to Rupert's theory and just it all just backfiring on him. And I put in my nose, Brandon is such an idiot because he really does just he, he didn't even give like Rupert enough time to really like solve the murder. He just outright goes, all right, this is what happened. <laughs> Let me solve the mystery for you. Yeah. And I do feel like the more we talk again, like about the, the Philip thing being relatable, like you said, cat, mouse, mouse, cat, who's who I can't take it pretty much. Uh, he does feel like he definitely plays the role of the audience. Like, let's just get to it. Like by the end of it, like, definitely. which way is this going to go? I just want to see. Although I will say his inflection reminded me a lot of James Dean. Just like, you're tearing me apart. <laughs> Lisa. <laughs> All right, so yeah, this final confrontation. I love this part. Uh, it's great, but for me, the something that I noticed this the second time watching again, I watched the movie twice. Second time I watched it, I noticed the lights, and I I love the lights. One, I didn't realize it was dark at this point; like it's very much nighttime, and so seamless transition there. But also, like I love like neon in movies. I just I just love that vertigos definitely full of them um but man just the 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 signs outside of the the apartment and how it leaks in right when rupert like forms the thought or is like comprehending what these two did and i love the fact when he like stands back up it's just full-on light show going on and it's really just like green red and white are the ones that are rotating back and forth and i'm you know green is for envy red is for rage and then white stands for innocence and that's just swirling around in this room one one last thing i wanted to point it out now that you're going into a lot of again more of the artsy stuff within it oh yes um the windows within the movie so at the beginning like we said before the hard cut they have the blinds closed and then he tells uh, brandon tells philip about maybe it's just the darkness getting to you uh, which is also kind of funny when you think about it, but um, <laughs> yeah. opening up the blinds and like, oh, it's a beautiful evening, which is also kind of the first note that you get that, oh, Brandon is very sadistic. But um, towards the end, when they're about to open up the chest to look at the body, he's like, maybe we should close these blinds. So it's almost like a cutting themselves off from the world in that way. It's like them going back into that murderous mode and only having the blinds open when people are around. Uh, but then I love, too, that Rupert opens up the window at the end to shoot off the gun. And it was kind of like like the window finally opening. And he just said before that uh, about what society will do to them. And chances are they'll kill them. And so yeah. he opens the window almost to the world in that way. And you hear the chatter of everybody and the sirens. So it's like the first time that you're... They've cut themselves off and been isolated from the people who they say that they're inferior and want to kill. And then they're the ones that end up deciding their fates. But, um, but yeah, just the whole, I guess, symbolism through the windows the whole time. And, like, what the, the themes behind that and the subtext with the windows. And, like I say, it finally opening up at the end, I felt like was a, was a, a great, I don't know. It felt like the windows themselves had a whole uh, yeah. storyline going on. I would say, like, they, like... Rupert forces them to finally let the world in. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. what and the, the fact that he had that line before about society will decide what happens to you. And then he does that. That like really yeah. turned me on to like the whole idea of the windows. And I feel like it's the first time for Brandon specifically, it's the first time reality is finally like 
gotten back. Like he's finally back in reality. He's out of his yeah, but, but mind. <laughs> I mean, but going into the last like the last part is like, yes, they both have like a sobering up moment, but then Brandon starts pouring a, a drink <laughs> to, <laughs> to fade right back out of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and Philip just starts playing the. I was like, he's, and I forgot from the first time. I was like, didn't he start playing the piano? And then he did. But uh, it's funny it's... because they both kind of just accept their fates. Like, well, I guess this is our last few sweet moments of freedom. What are we going to do? I'm going to drink. I'm going to play the piano. Yeah, and he just plops a chair right next to the body. Uh, Zarya, how do you feel about all that? Um, Y'all kind of covered everything. Um, But I will say that um, I did like how they did just settle into the fate. Like, okay, well, if before all the madness happens, I'm just going to continue to play the piano and I'm going to take my last drink. Yes. yes. So I, I did like that. And it's just such a beautiful shot with the three of them sitting there. You get the mm-hmm. back of Rupert and he's just, you know, you got the, the chest right there, which I'm like, man, that guy is method acting. I hope he is applauding inside of that case or he can see what's going on. Oh, and, What's real funny, I've never thought about this either now that you're talking about the back of Rupert. Yeah. Remember we said each cut occurs, well, except for the hard cut at the beginning. Oh, yeah, yeah. But each one is on the back of a you know somebody's jacket. When you think about it, that's like one final cut on somebody's, the back of a jacket, too, at the end. It doesn't go into it like the other ones did, but yeah. that's where we're left off and cut away from. So that's yeah. kind of interesting. Instead, it pulls out. So. Yeah. Oh, good point. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, I didn't think about that until now, but that's another cool thing with the ending, too. See, folks, cinema is fun. <laughs> it's not just us Whatever happened to it. Yeah. They <laughs> <laughs> died a long time ago. I'm going to start doing my Scorsese, get on my Scorsese soapbox. Yeah. I'm almost dead. <laughs> oh, man. Ooh, speaking of Scorsese, this is kind of out of the show, but Zarya, me and Zarya talked about The Departed last year. <laughs> very funny conversation <laughs> oh man All right. I both love and don't really love that movie honestly, oh, man. The topic. that's I fair lo- I love that's that that's fair movie. yeah it like is. there's parts that I really enjoy but it's just kind of a weird movie even the very ending I'm like what's I, going yeah. on I hate how long it is but I can watch that movie all day it's just just the accents alone oh, real quick real quick side note have you guys seen the interview of Matt Damon where he's talking about how Jack Nicholson added to the uh, murder on the beach. Like, it's just a quick 10-second thing no. that was supposed to happen in the script. It is so funny. He does a great Jack Nicholson impression. But basically what he said was, in the script, it was just saying, you know, you see a, a scene of him shooting a woman on the beach. And Jack Nicholson's like, yeah, it could be that simple. Or you leave the camera rolling, and then, you know, he says this line, like, you know, <laughs> wow, she fell weird. And it's like, and then you could stop there and cut, or you could keep the camera rolling and be like something like, uh, something sexual from there. And the other guy saying, I think you need to see it there. But it was just like one thing after another that Jack Nicholson added for what was supposed to be a quick cutaway. He ended up saying it like fleshing out the character and saying, like, what would my character do in that instance? But it, it's great. You guys will have to look up that clip because I didn't know Matt Damon could be so funny. But all I have to do is look up Matt Damon, you know, keep the camera rolling. Oh, my and God, it's yes. it's awesome. It's awesome. But anyway. All right. Yeah. So um, any final thoughts? <laughs> anything um, before we get into recommends? Anything you guys want to bring up before we go? 
I thought it was kind of cool that Janet worked for a magazine company called Allure that is actually still up and running today because they make Snapchat stories. Oh, wow. Yes. Also, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. I like Janet a lot, actually. I, I know I mentioned Kenneth and how he looked like Jude Law, and I do get that vibe of, like, I do get the Gwyneth Paltrow vibe from her, but the dress she wears in this movie is amazing. I'm, I'm oh. big into movie fashion. So, so pretty. I love the dress that she wears. And, like, that that red wine color, like, that was, re- in the way it, like, came up on the screen, like, it was good. It was good. What well, a, a favorite line of hers that um, she said was, I'm funny when I'm not trying, like, she, it was on the lines of, like, I'm funny when I'm not trying to be, but when I am, it's like dead silence. Because I felt that when I'm trying to be funny. <laughs> I get crickets, but if I'm dead serious, I get all the giggles and the cackles and the laughs. I'm like, I'm being serious, but let me try to be funny. (laughs) No. (laughs) And there's even like a line she says when she first like says hi to Ken. Uh, I can't remember exactly. I didn't write it down, but it's like she says something on the lines that was like sexual about their relationship, (laughs) but no one says anything. She's like, see what I mean? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man! All right. Um, with that being said, guys, do you recommend Rope, or I should say, do you recommend Alfred Hitchcock's Rope, Zarya? Yes, I do. All right. Quick question: What between Psycho and Rope, which one overtops? Oh, don't make me do that! Don't <laughs> don't make me choose. Oh no! Oh, okay. you think about it. <laughs> I'm still go with I'm still go with Psycho over Rope. But it's a close race. Yes. All right. And Cannon, do you recommend Albert Hitchcock's Rope? Uh, highly recommend. Like I said, I can't find a reason not to give this movie a shot. Um, and on the again, the more we've talked about it, the more I'm thinking, like, is this a perfect movie? I don't <laughs> know. Maybe. Like, I don't know. It's uh, it's got so much to it as we've just talked about, and. Uh, yeah, I think before coming in this podcast, I might I might have said Psycho over Rope, but now I'm leaning towards Rope. Yeah. I think. Um, so, yeah, again, it's it, it's the second watch for me. It almost felt like a first watch. There was so much I forgot about the movie. Aside from all I can remember was long take, long take. But um, <laughs> but yeah, no, highly highly recommend, and uh, I would again score this movie myself between something like a i was putting a nine before now i'm thinking like dang is this is this a 10 is this one of my 10s i don't know it's uh it's an yeah. 11 yeah <laughs> <It might be. laughs> that's awesome uh um, yeah no I, I i don't see why anybody couldn't enjoy this movie really all right yeah and as for me you know what i'm, I'm in the same position man i'm like I went. I started this podcast saying I love this movie. I'm in this podcast thinking, "Oh my god, I love this movie." Yeah, like I really love this movie. <laughs> really, like, what like, do I not love about this movie? Man, I might watch it again tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, I'll say this is to kind of get to my thoughts. Uh, I am thinking about it now too. Psycho versus this movie. Psycho it will always be number one. Well, okay. Let me say this. I love Psycho because of the world it has now, but also just that movie itself is damn near perfect for me. But Rope is, I think, is a perfect movie. And so if I'm thinking purely on just, like, filmmaking, I would have to put Rope above Psycho. But 
I will say Psycho is better directed. Well, maybe not. Mm, no, I'll I say think, Psycho, is, I think, is probably better photographed. I was just going to say, I, I, just to kind of uh, go off your thoughts and maybe try to explain, I was like, I think Psycho has freedom to roam because it's just shooting it. Like, I think rope is a lot more restricted and there's a lot more creativity that comes out of that restriction almost. Like, yes. it feels more indie than i guess psycho feels like a big feature film yeah there's a there's an epicness that comes with psycho but i will say and i've always said this even in our podcast zarya <laughs> the the third act of psycho is very like weird like the final like what 15 minutes is like after or i guess 10 minutes but like after you know they find norman in the dress there's just this this long monologue from this doctor explaining everything <laughs> it's like oh yeah you know, that that didn't need to be there like every time you get to that part you're kind of like all right movie's wrapping up but in this <laughs> one like we were saying in this one the the third act i would say it's probably one of hitchcock's is, is strongest it is kind of the same deal it is someone just explaining things but yeah the way this movie the way he directed this movie is much better than in Psycho. That's my only difference between the two. But I do agree with you. I think Psycho, because of how grand it starts and how it keeps that elevation, like it starts off at like a eight and it just keeps going up until you get to the murder. And even, even after the murder, when you get introduced to Lila and all them, it's like now the mystery's kicked in and we're all just like, we're all we're we're seated we're here this movie though you just it starts and it just keeps going and it's like well and again it goes back to like he can cut as much as he wants in that movie he's going to all these different locations in the movie and interior and exterior and all so again it's shot like a formal film is yeah but in in rope it's like you got one setting again it, it was based off a of play but it has that I guess hateful eight feel for me where it's like we're gonna just take place in this one room pretty much and add so <laughs> much suspense and just uh, intrigue uh, out of this it's like getting all you can out of like a like juice it pretty much as much as you can and i yes. think that's what makes it interesting to me is more the fact like anybody can go out and make rope i think at the end of the day if you're inspired enough you can you can make this movie in your house <laughs> like you know it's there's no reason you can't Whereas in other films, it's like a little more complicated, I think. Definitely, definitely. Which, okay, well, I'll say this. I definitely recommend this movie, 100%. It's definitely up there with Psycho as far as Hitchcock's films go. This remains one of my favorites. It's like, it's in the top like 15 if I had to, if I were to make a list. But I will say I do feel guilty because I don't ever really think about this movie. Like, when I think... Hitchcock or my favorite films Psycho does come before this movie but mm -hmm. I am very happy whenever I rewatch this film um, well, like you say the world of Psycho but also just how well known that movie is again yeah. even if you haven't seen it you know the shower scene and the controversy that that movie spawned is like it's a toilet <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. so uh yeah, I think those are other reasons you may think of a psycho and it being more iconic at the end of the day, but this is just like a hidden gem. So I will say this, though, right before we end here, um, before we say goodbye, my fellow listeners, I do want to know, do you think this movie should be remade or could you see this movie being remade? Yes. Yeah, I could. 
I was actually thinking about that in part of the movie. It's like, yeah, I could see this be adapted. All right. All right. I was thinking about it. Like I said, I kind of was making my own little notes of like, well, if I were directing this, I, I would like to see a remake. I think, number one, you brought up Hateful Eight. I think Rupert Samuel Jackson. Oh, oh my God. Yes. Yes. That is perfect. He's the right age. And but he's he's also not as sadistic when you think about it though too that flashback scene yeah. in that movie so when that script leaked out I actually downloaded a copy and read that script I'm guilty of that uh, I know I'm sorry Tarantino but uh, when I read that I was like holy moly like, that is crazy crap I was like that's even crazy for Tarantino like that's yes. that's wild uh, but yeah anyways yeah no great comparison though. Yes, definitely, definitely Samuel Jackson. Um, if I were to cast Brandon and Philip just for kicks, I would say for Philip. I know this is probably like annoying, but first person that comes to mind for me would be like either Timothy Chalamet or Lucas Hedges, like those two, just because those two play like innocent so well to twist it and flip it to make it more of guilt. I think they will both process that well i see lucas hedges more uh for brandon i'm kind of blanking um i feel like you would need to go a little older i am just thinking about a lot of actors that are just popular right now but two actors i always want to see alongside each other i think because they both you talk about a love triangle too i I would do tom holland as philip and timothy chalamet as uh, brandon Yes, ah! yes, yes. You know, that's my pick for Harry Osborne. Uh, yeah, so I want to see that dynamic. <laughs> and cast Zendaya as Janet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I feel like they're both, uh, I guess because of Dune and Spider-Man, but I feel like they both have such great chemistry with Zendaya. Yes, definitely. Okay, there it is. So we got Tom Holland, Timothy Chalamet, Zendaya, and, and Samuel, Samuel Jackson. Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> what, a, what a throw in. Man. I guess uh, for Miss Atwater, we need to have a contemporary for Samuel. Kathy Bates, she always kind of fills that role. Yeah, yeah, that's a Kathy good Bates one. is the aunt. Yes. 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 Um, uh, Jan- yeah, we said Janet Zendaya. Um, who would be Ken? <laughs> Jude Law. No, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, actually, no. Uh, Ju- Lucas Hedges. Put in Lucas Hedges. Yeah. I, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Like um. That. Yeah. Lucas Hedges kind of fills that role there. Who plays David? David, ooh, you need a big star. You need to go full. You need on. a big star that you. Wait, what about a Brad Pitt? You could pull a Deadpool too. <laughs> <laughs> He's done it for five seconds. He's gone. Yes. Oh my god. <laughs> Somebody like that. I don't know. I would say, um, honestly, Justin Bieber. <laughs> I love and hate that decision, but yeah, yeah. I think if I not Justin it. Bieber, um, I'm looking at the poster now, and I can kind of see it. But if I feel like if you put this actor in this movie, you need to have flashbacks because he's good of an actor. You don't want to waste him. So, okay, I have two for David. Number one, Evan Peters will be a great cameo as like a Ooh. dead yeah. body. But I'm looking at love. I have a Love Simon poster, so I'm looking at Love Simon. Ah oh, man, what's his name? What's his name again? Nicholas something. Main dude. Looking at Nick Robinson. Nick Robinson, yes. As David. I, I want to go, uh, Paul Dano. Paul, <laughs> he's a little too old, but yeah, yeah, he has that face for it. Oh man, I'm actually kind of tired of seeing that guy just be bound and like beaten. <laughs> oh. We did, we did, uh, 
prisoners not too long ago, Zarya. So that's the the guy in the 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 radiator or whatever box that is Paul Dano. I put um, Viola Davis and Terrence Howard as a married couple, right? Yes. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> Okay. Actually, I'll tell you, I, I want to take it back real fast. Last pick for David, and I actually think he kind of looks like him now that I think about it, is Jeremy Allen White. He's in, the main actor in The Bear. Yeah, Shameless. I think good he'd be a good Philip Gallagher. Yeah, he was my, he was my, he was the person I thought of when I was thinking of Brandon, but I was like, not nah, just because I kept seeing his face. <laughs> yeah, I think he looks, he has the James Dean type of look to him, and I think, uh, again, me thinking that guy was James Dean, I'm going to cast him. That's my choice. All right, so we've got pretty much everyone cast except for the dad. There's Brad Pitt. There we go. <laughs> the only difference I thought when I, and this is going to sound so stupid when I thought about like an adaptation is uh, instead of it being such like a formal party, trying to make it more of a house party, I guess, like a Dude. like a frat type thing instead of a preppy thing. And oh. then you could kind of substitute like drinks for weed, maybe or like Philip super high in the movie. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I just thought you could kind of turn this into like a, a thriller comedy suspense sort of thing. Yes. Ooh. Oh, wow. Is Jonah Hill old enough to play a dad? Cause if we're putting that said, Oh in, yeah. Either yeah. that or Seth Rogen, like though, cause they, they both do really well in serious roles. And, but the irony would be awesome. Would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. That was just, like I said, I, I was unconsciously again, going back to unconscious. Yeah. Um, <laughs> trying to think about how would i make this movie today and that's what i thought throw like a comedy element in there yeah all right all right uh, we got ourselves uh we got ourselves a remake guys uh, we need to get universal on the line here <laughs> this, this issue would be reaching out to these guys somebody take these <laughs> please yes get the get the contracts up now we should be casting directors <laughs> honestly all right with that being said, thank you guys for joining me in talking about this movie and this just this true crime episode, guys. I I really enjoyed it. Honestly, I'm saying right now, probably our one of the best episodes of the year. I think best episode ever. All right, look at that. Yes. That <laughs> so this episode is going to get bully a run for its money. I hope so. Because <laughs> every time I look, it's like, and there's bully, and then there's everything else. <laughs> bully. That episode was so unhinged. It was so bad, man. It, the, I mean, I wish the audio was a lot clearer, right? There was a way to clear the audio up, but such a funny, funny time. But I remember it being a bitch to edit. Like that was one of the most. That was the hardest episode I had to edit so far. You probably believe- didn't want to cut anything out, did you? No, yeah, it was. Yeah, I didn't want to cut anything out. It was very long, and it was so many voices kind of talking at once. <laughs> So I had to like pick out the different voices. Else. You could have given it like that Safty Brothers feel though, like an uncut gems. Everybody's talking over each other. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> I actually really like that movie. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I like how they. I mean, that's a cool little tool that they use. I think the other film it makes it more chaotic. I think in a good way. All right. So, um, like I said, thank you guys for joining us. Thank you guys for listening. Have a good night. And um, you guys want to end on any kind of clever moments or any clever lines from this movie? Brandon, spoken of you. Did he do me justice? Do you deserve justice? I feel like that needs to be a Batman line just with all the justice talk. I love that. Yeah, just at the end, Batman. (laughs) Do you deserve justice? (laughs) The score comes in. Batman! (laughs) All right. Good night, guys. Good night.